In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Glory to thee, O God. Glory to thee, Heavenly King, O Comforter, the Spirit of Truth, who art everywhere present and fillest all things. O Treasure, every good bestower of life, come and dwell in us, and cleanse the very stain, and save our souls. A good one. We read in the Bible in Luke, and this is this particular section is read when there's a feast day of the Mother of God. In the church, we always hear the Martha, Martha, though anxious about many things, etc. When Christ went to the house of Martha and Mary, and Martha was serving while Mary was sitting at Christ's feet listening to his teaching. And then later on in the gospel section of that, there's a part where it said, and it happened as he spoke these things that a certain woman from the crowd raised her voice and said, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast which nursed you. Blessed is the womb, in other words, obviously referring to the mother of God's womb who bore Christ and the breasts which nursed, the breasts that he drank milk from, blessed are they as well. But he said, more than that, blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Now in the New King James, they say, rather blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. But of course, because the Bible was written in Greek, except for Matthew, which was later translated, I think the Greeks would be in a better position to know what, does it, what is the Greek word where it says, does it say rather? Now in the study Bible, which I will talk about later on, they actually say more than that. Blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. The Protestants like to say, you see, even Christ is saying, because they say rather, blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. The Protestants are saying, see, even Christ himself doesn't want us to honour his mother like the Catholics do or like the Orthodox do. And that's why after the woman said, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast which you nursed on, that you drank milk from, and Christ says, more than that, blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. So does that mean that we put the mother of God to the side, as the Protestants say, or is there something special about this meaning? And how do we know the meaning? Do we just read the Bible and we work it out ourselves, like Luther and all the rest did? Or do we read the Bible and we look at what the church teaches through all the Holy Fathers who are inspired by the Holy Spirit? And that's why we have the interpretations of the Bible. I will come to that at the end of the talk and we shall develop tonight as we go on and we'll see whether we can come to a conclusion. Why does Christ say more than that? Blessed is he that hears the word of God and keeps it. Now, in the last talk, what did we say? We, we tried to compare those who came to the faith, those who came to Christ after seeing miracles, and those who came to faith after hearing the word of God. 
And the question that I posed in the beginning of the talk was, just like I posed the question now, which has a stronger effect on a person? Seeing miracles or hearing the word of God? And we came to a conclusion after reading a lot of Bible passages and reading the Holy Fathers and reading Blessed Theophilact who interpreted the Bible and St. John Chrysostom, etc. We came to the conclusion that or they helped us come to the conclusion, which is that those who hear the word of God become stronger Christians. And those, I actually read it here, the conclusion I made last week is what St. Ignatius, branching in of the Russian saints, writes, it is important to note that those who believed on account of signs and miracles belong to a group of weak believers in Christ. Those who came to Christ, those who came to the church, those who came to fight faith because they saw a miracle or a sign belong to a weak group of believers. And it says here, when they were offered a deep, holy and spiritual teaching, in other words, when they were asked, okay, now you believe, now let's start to struggle. You have to start studying the word of God and, and do it, as, as we just read not just to listen to the word of God but and, and to do it, then many of them understood it according to their own way and I add to that and many of them fell away. So the word of God is more powerful than signs and miracles. That was the whole of the last talk which took around three and a half hours. Last week... I mentioned about that I was going to read The Samaritan Woman. And I thought to myself, I will actually do that today and a couple of other things, and we go on with the talk. Remember, we want to know today, what does it mean? Does, is Christ saying the mother of God is important but not that important? More important are those who hear the word of God and keep it. And remember that God becoming man in the womb of the Virgin Theotokos is the central dogma of the church. In other words, the whole of Christianity hangs on that. How can Christ say more than that, blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it, like he's saying, put her to the side? But let's go on and see. So the Samaritan woman. Some of you are familiar, hopefully most of you are, and some of you are, unfortunately, are not. So I will read, I'll read it. I've left some parts out because it's just too, it's too long. But let's see what we can get today from the Samaritan woman and to see the power of the word of God. Obviously, miracles are powerful. So we see a miracle. It's divine. It affects us. But the word of God also has power. The word of God carries with it the grace of God. And let's see that. So, he came to a, to a city of Samaria, which is called, uh, in, in, um, in English, Sychar, in Greek, Sychar. It's uh, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Now Samaria 
if anyone knows a bit about Israel. So we have the map of Israel and down the bottom is Judea where is Jerusalem. Galilee is up the top. In the middle is the region which is called Samaria. In this region were pagans during the time of Christ. The name Samaria comes from the hill which is there, which is called Samaria, the hill of Samaria. Now to this day, to travel to Galilee, one has to go from Jerusalem, has to still travel through Samaria, that the region, and has to go past Jacob's well, which those of you who have been on pilgrimage will know that whenever you go on the bus to the tour up to, to go up to Galilee, to go to Nazareth, there are other areas up there, other um, uh, shrines, you have to pass through Jacob's well, and a lot of the times the bus stops. By the way, we have a, high, a new martyr there that died, I don't know, about 20 years ago, an Orthodox priest monk, Greek, who was taking care of Jacob's well. Remember that because there's not enough monks and nuns in the Holy Land, sometimes one takes care of a holy place. So I think, from what I remember, he lived on his own and was taking care of Jacob's well. And they found him, uh, that, he was, um, that someone attacked him with an axe, carved the cross on his face, and he died, and we, have, we call him Hyamata Philumenos, and he was killed by the Jews. They want that well because it's also connected to their past. But the place is not now called um, Sichar, but it's called Aska. Anyway, among the many gods, see, the Samaritans did believe in the Old Testament, but just the first five books of Moses, the, the five books of Moses. That's what they believed, but they also believed in all pagan gods, etc. In other words, for the, for the Jews, they considered them as pagans, and in a way, in a way they were. The only reason they even recognised those five books of Moses was out of respect because they said, well, Jacob found this well. This is um, an area where Jacob lived. And because of that, we respect the five books of Moses. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey and sat by the well, it was about the sixth hour. Now, we read this in the Bible, sixth hour, third hour, ninth hour, that Christ died on the cross on the ninth hour. This is what is called the Eastern. This is the way the, those in the East keep the time. Starts from the morning. Third hour is around nine o'clock. Sixth hour is lunchtime. Ninth hour is mid-afternoon, three o'clock. In Mount Athos, they still determine the time by the sun. When the sun comes up, then they start their thirds and six hours and things like that. They actually keep what's called Byzantine time. So when you go there, you've got your time, and you say to the monk, what time is um, Vespers? And he goes, the time is going to be at, I don't know, one o'clock. I go, well, how can it be one o'clock when it's now three o'clock? They go, oh, we go with the Byzantine time. So they actually still keep the old time. So here, where the Bible mentions uh, sixth hour, it means lunchtime. And in the desert, lunchtime means hot. When we hear that Christ was wearied from his journey, we must remember that although he was God, he was also man. Midday is when the daytime heat is the greatest. Why does he travel during the day when most people travel? No one would travel 
at lunchtime. Usually travel in the morning, afternoon, night time, but you don't travel through the desert in the daytime because it's so hot. And these, the answer that the fathers say is because nights for him were for prayer and he travelled by day on foot, up hills and in the heat, tired and thirsty, because he wanted to use every minute of the day to bring benefit to mankind, and that is salvation. So in the night, he, he prayed. During the day, he travelled. Now, the fathers say, if he wasn't travelling at that time, he wouldn't have met the Samaritan woman. We wouldn't have this great story, who later on obviously became Saint Fortigny. Uh, as they say in Greek, Svetlana, I think, I think that's the way you, the uh, Russians and the Serbians say it, means light. How do you say it in Svetlana, is it? And that Svet, how do you say light? Yeah, so that's light. So it comes from light. And so Fortigny, force, light. And so therefore she has the name Saint Fortigny because she gave the light of Christ, as we'll see. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. Now, Christ was tired and thirsty, as I've already mentioned, so it's clear that he had a real human body. He didn't appear to be tired. He didn't appear to be thirsty. He was tired and he was thirsty because not only being perfect God, he was perfect man. Because a lot of heretics in the church said he never had a body. He never suffered on the cross. He appeared to suffer on the cross. But Christ did suffer on the cross, not as God. He suffered on the cross as man. And when he was thirsty, he wasn't thirsty as God. He was thirsty as man. When he was hungry or tired, etc., all as man, not as God. So these heretics, that, that where they say that Christ appeared to have a body, is false. And that's why they're called heretics. They distort the truth. So he did feel the need for food and drink and he suffered pain and he suffered pain on the cross. One could ask the following question. Could not he who multiplied the bread walked on water? Couldn't he with one word, one powerful word, or even just a thought, as we noticed in the last talk, that Christ could do a miracle by word, but he can even do miracles just in thought? Couldn't he open up a rock so water can come out like in the Old Testament and drink? Why is he asking, why is he lowering himself to ask this woman for a drink of water? And remember, as we'll hear later on, the Samaritans and the Jews hated each other. And he could have performed that miracle. But the Holy Fathers say that he never performed the miracle for himself. And we are going to see that in the next talk, hopefully, God willing, next, um, uh, next month, that those who did miracles never did them for themselves, always for the good of others. And he, Christ, shows us that example. Now... All his miracles were for others. There was not one bit of selfishness in him. Now, some might say, oh, how about when he escaped when he was a baby, when Herod was after him to kill him, like he killed the other children, the 14,000, and then he escaped to Egypt. And some can say, well, there it was a miracle because he was protected. 
And the fathers there say that this again was not for him. This was because he had not finished his work among men and he did not flee from death to save himself, but because he hadn't finished his work. When he had finished his work, then he gave himself up to be crucified. So we have to remember that whatever Christ did was never for himself. We continue on with the Bible. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. They hated each other. So she straight away said, Well, why are you asking me for water? We don't talk to each other. And and St. Nikolai, I think, said something to the Serbian saying, he said, when a nation is at enmity with another nation, individuals should not extend this hatred to all the people of that nation, but it's our duty to help every person in need with no consideration of whether the person belongs to our nation or not. So, for example, in the Second World War, we were at war with Japan and with um, Germany. What St. Nikolai is saying is that we shouldn't hate the individuals of a country that we are at war with. Therefore, Christ is breaking down the barrier of hatred by speaking with her and asking her for help, in other words, asking her for a drink of water. For example, even the Christians of the first century, the pagans were at war with the Christians. They hated the Christians. And what happened there? The Christians knew that the pagans were their enemies. But for individuals, like when they saw a pagan who was sick or hungry, they would take care of them. They would help them. So we should never look, yes, our country could be at war with another country, but we mustn't hate all individuals of that country. And that's something which is uh, Christian. We can't say, oh, because we're at war, we say, oh, that that, that country hates us, therefore I hate every single person in that country. The Lord does not reveal who he is until the woman's virtue Uh, thoughtfulness and terms have all been shown so he doesn't say straight away I am the Messiah he doesn't say that but he waits for her to develop as we're going to see how Christ helps her to spiritually um, rise in level slowly 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 Jesus answered and said to her if you know the gift of God and who it is who says to you give me a drink you would have asked him and he would have given you living water Now, Christ uses what's part of her life, living water. What's living water? We might think it means something spiritual, which Christ is meaning something spiritual. But if he is meaning something spiritual, why did she think he was talking about water? Because in that country, and in general, that's like what we call spring water or water that comes from the ground or from a river. See, living water means fresh, flowing water from a stream or spring, rather than rainwater collected in wells and tanks, even though some wells were also 
they have some um, spring water coming into them as well. They could. But in general, well water comes from rain. But living water, that's why the woman thought when he said, you know, give me, um, and he would have given you living water, she thought he meant some special, beautiful water from a spring. So Christ was not speaking about physical water, but living water, which means the Holy Spirit, the life-giving power of the Holy Spirit. And as we heard from another part of the Bible, that those who believe in him, in those who believe in Christ, would receive the Holy Spirit. So he who confesses Christ, he who believes in Christ, will, believe, will receive this living water, the Holy Spirit. And what's this gift of God? He goes, if you knew the gift of God, well, the Holy Father say that that's Christ himself. So he is leading her slowly, slowly to think on a spiritual level. And he uses what's familiar to her, what she's interested in. This woman has to walk from her house to go to this well in the heat. So when he says water, and she says, well, this is going to help me because I don't have to come here. So he uses something which is for her. Just like when, uh, with the Magi, when Christ was born. Remember that the Magi followed a star. The Magi were astronomers. They studied the stars. So Christ used something that was familiar to them to bring them to him. When St. Paul went to Athens, they, Athens was full of pagan gods, statues everywhere of, of gods. So what did St. Paul use? He used what they were familiar, what they were interested in. What were they interested in? Gods and statues. So he says to them, I see that you are very religious people, which they were, it wasn't lying. And he said, and I have come here to talk to you because you notice one of the statues there had an inscription which says the unknown God. So he used that, which they, that's their interest in those things. And he says, I've come to here to talk to you about this unknown God. I'll give you another example, which, is, um, which was interesting. Which was interesting. You might, some of you might find it interesting, but just to give you what I mean as well from my own experience. I went to, I finished um, school 34, 34 years ago, say. 34 years ago. Anyway, a few years ago, I had decided to go to, for some medical help to a doctor and I remembered that one of the students from my school that I was a student at, not when I used to teach at as a student, was a, a doctor of some sort. So I decided I might look him up and go to him. So I walked in and he, of course he never recognised me at all. It was around three, four years ago. So I went in as I am dressed now and he had no idea who I was, so I was speaking to him, and I was bringing up some things from the past, and he was saying, how do you know? How do you, who? I go, well, you, you should know me. And he goes, no, I can't recognise you. He goes, a little bit you're familiar, but I can't recognise who you are. And then later on I said, I used to, we used to drive to university together, and I used to come and pick you up, and then he remembered who I was. He didn't ask me at all, oh, you're a priest, no question. He didn't ask me anything about religion. He didn't ask anything about the church, spiritual, what made me become a priest, etc. Because when he knew me, I wasn't religious. So what did I do? 
get off the examination table and start um, getting the Bible and start preaching to him like some people do not. He never asked. I never spoke. We spoke about everything else, but I would not speak about religion because he never spoke about it. He never asked. I mean, all of a sudden, you've got a person that you used to go to school with and he's wearing black and he's, he's wearing a cross and you, he had no... He wasn't even inquisitive. So he's not inquisitive. I'm not saying anything. So I left it. And that went on. I used to go and see him every few, about every six months. Never said anything, never said anything. So one day, but he was a very intelligent person. He likes to talk about things that happen in the world and medical things and other things and things like that. So somehow the conversation got on to, I said, oh, about women that, are, that get pregnant and they have a baby. And I said, um, yeah, today a lot of women, they have breakdowns after their baby, which they call postnatal, but a lot of it is because they don't rest. Straight after, them, some of them go to work after eight days. So they give birth... And before even stitches are healed, if they've had them, they're already back at work. And they, or they come home, there's other children there. So they've got to take care of the other children that they've got and, to, and do all the housework and there's no support. So a lot of times it's, it's, this is just overworking stress. I said, that's why the church, I slipped it in, I just something made me, I said, that's why we have in the church the 40 days. He goes, oh, yeah, I remember that, 40 days. They go, yeah, we have, and now I hear that doctors are saying, 40 days. And he goes, oh, yes. Yeah. So, so he's interested in that stuff. So that's from that. Talked about a little bit more and I talked about a bit about education, a little bit about this, a little bit about that, putting a little bit of spiritual in it because he was interested. When I went back to the car to leave, I had a thought, because I had in the car in my bag there some of these CDs, some of the talks which I give to the Metropolitan when I go, um, just for his records. And I was impelled and I got the... Um, the CDs, about two of them. I went back into the surgeon. I said, um, oh, I've got these CDs. I don't know if you're interested. He goes, yeah, I am. And he grabbed them. So, okay, he grabbed them. So then after that, I had to ring up for another appointment and he answered. That was around three, four days later. And I thought, I wonder if he's heard them. Maybe he doesn't even like them, whatever. So I, um, I said to him the appointment and then I said to my house, the talk. Said, oh, yeah, about those talks. Do you have any more? So <laughs> that shows that it took three, four years, even to get him interested. But if I went there and started straight away to talk about... And we turn people off. People need to be ready. And in today's talk, we are going to see how Christ waits for people to develop and be ready. The woman said to him, Lord, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where then did you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself as well as his sons and his livestock? I've read this section so many times and really only after I read the interpretation did I actually understand even a little bit of it which I will share with you. So she said, Lord. Now some of us think, oh, see, she's recognised him as God. No, Lord is Kyrios, like we say, and I think in, in Russian and Slavonic, we call people Gospody or something. How do you say it? Gospody, which means Lord, but Lord is not just in reference to God. That's what we say, you know, in Greek, Kyrios Yorgos, like Mr. George or Sir George. It's not like that. So in, there, in those times, it was the same thing. Lord does not mean God. So she called him Lord. However, 
So in other words, sorry, I'll start, I'll start again. She di- quickly discards a view of him because before she kind of looked at him as a Jew and looked low at him. But now she addresses him as Lord, showing some respect. However, she has not yet understood the depths of Christ's word, his words. At first, the woman is thinking of the bottom of the water. She goes, living water, living water. That means it must come from a spring, because that's what living water means. Maybe this man is speaking about deep down in the well, really deep where there might be some water coming in. She got all confused, and then she was saying, um, later on, she says, you haven't even got a, a long rope. Where are you going to get this living water from? So she's getting confused of exactly what Christ meant by living water. At first, the woman is thinking about the bottom of the well, like I said, where the water flows in, thus showing confusion. But in a moment, a second thought comes. See, how do we know this? When we read in the Bible, do we know that she had one thought and then she quickly went over to another thought? She had one view of him and then she went to another view. That's why we need to read the Holy Fathers. She's, uh, at, in, a, in a moment, a second thought comes to her and urges her to ask, are you greater than our father Jacob? She's expressing pride in their forefather, because the Samaritans had pride that their forefather was Jacob, who built the well. She says, like, it's like she's saying in a, round, in a way, this well of Jacob's has abundant water so that all who live in the area, including travellers, visitors and animals, drink from it. And this for so many centuries, and the water has never dried up from this well over all these hundreds of years. Can you do something greater than this? And what do the father say? She's actually mocking Christ. She's, uh, she's actually showing doubt as if, one, one would say in Australian, in uh, English ways, as if you can get this living water when this is the only well in the area and this was, this was found by Jacob himself. So in a way, it's sarcastic. She's showing doubt. She's mocking. But the father say there that it's, or St Nikolai says, it's indirect. It's not straight out, but it's kind of subtle, skillfully concealed. And what does Christ do? Because, of course, he knows, being God, he knows that even if someone's skillfully concealing their sarcasm or their, or their uh, mockery, he knows as God. But what does he do? Does he rebuke her? Does he tell her off? No, it says here that he gets on with saving her soul. He doesn't reject her. He doesn't run off from her. Yes, she was being rude, one can say, but maybe we can say innocently rude. Let's see what else. Jesus answered and said to her, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life, more spiritual. The woman said to him, Lord, give me this water that I may not thirst nor come here to draw. If we remember from two talks before that we said about the bread when the Jews were coming after Christ and he says, give us bread, give us bread after they saw the multiplication of the loaves, those of you who were here. And I'll read that part there and you'll see the similarity. That's what Christ's saying now about the water. Let's see what he said then about the bread. He goes, do not labour like she was labouring for the water. She was obsessed with the water. And justifiably, because without water, they can't live there. And the Jews were saying, the bread, the bread, the bread. So he goes, 
he says to the Jews, do not labour for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life. If you read that and you read the other one, it's just about the same. One with reference to water, if you drink the water again, you will thirst. Here, if you eat this food, it perishes. You'll be hungry again. And he continues on, your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they're dead. They had this, this miraculous bread that came down from heaven and they ate for 40 years, but at the end of the day, they still died. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. Mirror image. For the Jews who are interested in the bread, he spoke about the bread, but saying about everlasting life. Here, he's speaking to the woman who's interested in the water, and he's saying, if you drink this water, or any water, you're still going to get thirsty. But the water that I'm going to give you will give you everlasting life. Now we're getting to the more spiritual. At this stage, she begins to show signs of spiritual progress. Before, when she could not understand, she asked with uncertainty and doubt, where can you get this living water? That's what she said earlier. Now... Without doubt, and she accepts Christ's words and begs, give me this water, as we just read, give me this water that I may not thirst nor come here to draw. But the woman is still thinking of spring water. She actually still thinking of the physical water, but she's changing her attitude towards Christ. She's noticing that something about him, maybe the way he's speaking, maybe she felt something in his presence, and when St. Nikolai says, she could have thought of Christ as some magician, able to work a marvel by sorcery. So in other words, she thought maybe he, can do a, maybe he can do a magic trick. Maybe he can make water come from somewhere else. Still confused and all over the place, but showing some trust. But trust in him as a magician. In order to break down her human thinking... He suddenly turns the conversation to a completely different subject. Now, he spoke enough about this and she still doesn't get it. So now it comes time. What did we read last time in the last talk? Remember we said because they didn't understand his words, he had to give a stronger medicine because they're unbelief and he'd perform miracles, if you remember in the last talk. Well, let's see what he's going to do now. He might do a miracle. Those, of course, who have read it will know there was no real miracle, as we know from we heard from the other talks. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you have well said I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one whom you have now is not your husband. In that you tr spoke truly. So really, is this a miracle? It's a power, but it's more to do with prophecy. Insight. The Lord knows that she has no husband. But he wants to shock her. He wants to give a little bit of a jolt to her because sometimes people need that when they're spiritually dead. How? He wants her to experience his insight. That is that he's all-knowing and all-seeing. That he knows everything and sees everything. He could have performed some miracle in front of the woman, which we know he did for others, but instead... He shows himself as a prophet. This having the same effect as would wonder working, but this was specifically... And so in other words, here, 
He doesn't perform a miracle for her. He uses this, he wants to show this, uh, this, his prophetic powers. Why doesn't he use a miracle for her? Because this is what he thinks is best for her. Now we know from the Orthodox Church that we have our holy Yerunda Staritzes, elders and eldresses that people go to. When we read Elder um, Porfirios, he even said, Elder Porfirios even said, I will tell them something that there's no way that I will know to make them to come to Christ. He actually even said it. Now, some people of Manathos were scandalised by that and said, oh, no, this is no good. He's deceived. Actually, a lot of people thought that Elder Porphyrus was deceived. But his humility was so great that he was protected and he used this ability that God gave him, this gift, and he would say to people, secrets, etc., and he predicted future things and all that type of things. And he did that, and that had a big effect on people. Such that many of them changed. So let's see here. I found this in another section to do with Nathanael, but let's just, uh, I will um, read it to you, what St. Theophilact says about prophecy, which I really never knew. It says, prophecy has great power even greater than miracles, to move a man to believe. The demons can simulate miracles. That means they can pretend, they can do false miracles, which we've already heard about. But not even angels, and still less demons, have perfect knowledge and the ability to predict future events accurately. Only God and those who God gives that power to. But a saint even if he says the future, it's only because God allowed that to be given to him, wanted that to be given to him. Not that the saint can click his fingers and say things. Only if God wants, while the magicians and these other people who contact with the dead and they say all these things with other mediums, they turn it off and on when they feel like it. But the saints don't turn anything off and on. It's only if God gives it to them at the time. If God decides for that saint to be enlightened, he will enlighten him to say something to the person to awaken him. So, demons don't know the future. They can, we've said this before, they can guess the future, but they don't know the future. Only God knows. So, St. Theophilact, basing his teachings on all the fathers, says that, that prophecy has great power, even greater than miracles. So Christ decided to use this for her, not a miracle. Not making water come out or doing some other things like he did, walking on water, raising someone from the dead. He didn't do any of that for her, for, for this woman... He, that's what he did. The woman said to him, Lord, I perceive you are a prophet. So obviously, straight away, she understood this person is, is a prophet. Our fathers were... Then she starts going on to the spiritual because what's the thing between the Jews and the Samaritans? She says, our fathers worshipped on this mountain and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is a place where one ought to worship. Then it goes on, this, this, there's a few more things that are said there. I've left all that out. Then the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all 
things. Now, the Samaritans believed that Moses was the last prophet, just like the Muslims believed that uh, Muhammad was the last prophet. But they believed that the, the, the Samaritans believed that Moses was the last prophet. So when she noticed that Christ was uh, showing the characteristics of a prophet, she thought to herself, well, the only prophet that comes after Moses, in their mind, is Christ himself. So therefore, she thought, maybe this is the Christ. How did the woman know that the Messiah is coming who is called Christ? From the writings of Moses, then this is what, for the Samaritans accepted the five books of Moses. These are the five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, uh, Deuteronomy. Those are the five books, the first five books of the Old Testament. That's what they believed in, in whatever way they believed. Reading these, they knew, the Samaritans knew, that the various prophecies concerning Christ, which tell that he is the Son of God. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. And by the way, there's some Greek there which I'm not familiar with, but the way he says, I who speak to you am he, there's something there which is the way that God spoke about himself, which was blasphemy for any human to speak like that. And he, of course, being God, he spoke like that. Uh, which I didn't go into the, the, that detail there. Having reached the suitable, appropriate moment in their conversation, the Lord reveals himself to her when it was time. In this case, it took a certain while. For some people, it might take 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years. If he had said from the start, I am the Christ, he would have put her off by appearing arrogant and presumptuous. That is, that he's egotistical, that he's too confident. Like, who's he to say that he's the Messiah? And he didn't do that because she wasn't ready. Instead, he leads her step by step to the point where she remembers that the Messiah will come then he reveals himself when she was spiritually ready. The woman then left her water pot, went her way into the city and said to the men, come see a man who told me all things that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? Then they went out of the city and came to him. There's a few other things there. And many of the Samaritans of that city believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified, he told me all that I ever did in the interpretations, actually says that she was so shocked with the whole thing that she didn't even say one word. After he said, I who speak to you am he, she ran off to the, um, to the city to tell the people. Many of the Samaritans believed in Christ even before they saw him, and they based this solely on the woman's word. She worked no miracle, and she was not an apostle. All she said was, he told me some secrets and could this be the Messiah? That's all she did and people believed that. She didn't perform any miracles. They didn't even see Christ yet. On the contrary, she was a sinful woman but even so her words brought many pagans to faith in Christ. And what shame and embarrassment for the Jews, the chosen people who, with all the mighty words from his mouth that they heard from Christ, they remained deaf and dumb. They remained unrepentant. They remained stony-hearted. In other words, these Samaritans saw hardly anything. Well, they didn't even see Christ. They didn't see any miracle. They just heard what she said, and they believe. 
while the Jews saw miracle on miracle and her teachings and teachings and teachings, and they didn't believe. Many of them didn't believe. So when the Samaritans had come to him, they urged him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days, and many more believed because of his own word. So there was those who believed because they heard the woman what she said, and now there are those who believe because they heard Christ himself. Now, explanation, the Nazarenes sought to cast the Lord down from the hill to destruction from his words. We're going to read that later on. That when he went into the temple and he, was, and he taught, he said some things which bothered them and they took him to knock him down the hill to kill him after they heard his teaching. The Gadarenes, the ones with the pigs that were, feeding the, that were breeding the pigs, they begged him to leave them and go away. But the Samaritans did the opposite. They urged him to stay with them. Apart from those who believed in Christ because of the woman's words, many more believed because of the words from his most pure lips, the words that came from Christ, others believed as well. Now, the evangelist does not tell us, if you read the story, the passage in the, of the Samaritan, John chapter 4 there, part of the first part of chapter 4, the evangelist John does not say what Christ said to these people. All he says was that they believed because of his word. The evangelist does not need to tell us the particular words of Christ's marvellous teaching, not important. He's merely stating the end result, shows us the sense of their divine power. The fact that so many people change from listening to him shows that these words have divine power, that these people sensed, they felt the power that were in the words that Christ said. Example, um, okay. St. Paul, I don't know if you know this, but St. Paul, he had um, a speech impediment, some type of speech impediment. When St. Paul would write, he wrote with love, with authority. However... When people saw him face to face, they were scandalised. It says here in Corinthians, for example, from his letters, this is what the people say, from his letters, they, they are weighty. His letters are very strong, powerful. But when you see him, when you see him in actual fact, he's weak. And his speech is contemptible because St. Paul did not have a gift of speaking as such. And I think that's what contemptible means. It was just something to be, to be looked down at. And St. Paul says that he was sent by Christ to preach the gospel not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. When we hear people speak, they like to speak with wise words. Make it sound really flowery and nice, etc., etc. The, the, I believe the more flowery it is, actually the less power it has. Because St Paul is saying that the words themselves have power. For I consider that I am not at all inferior to most eminent apostles. He said, I'm not inferior, I'm not lower than the apostles because, he says, even though I am untrained in speech, yet I am not in knowledge. 
but we have been thoroughly manifested among you in all things. And another part where St. Paul in Thessalonians says this important part, and then I'll, get, and then I'll get off this. For this reason, we also thank God without ceasing, because when you, meaning the Thessalonians, from Thessalonica, when you Christians of Thessalonica received the word of God, you heard from us, the, the, the words that you heard from us, you welcomed it not as word of men, not as human, not as something which is just intellectual, but as it is in truth, the word of God. So the word of God has power. The word of God has grace, in other words. And he continues on, which also effectively works in you who believe. Another translation says, who has living power in you who believe. That the word of God becomes alive in a person and gives that power and gives spiritual In other words, it gives the grace of the Holy Spirit to the person. But the best, interpret, the best one is the Greek. What's the Greek word? It's not which also effectively works in you or which has living power in you, even though they're, you know, they're all right. But the Greek word, energite, energy, which is the word of God, which also energizes itself in you who believe. So we can talk about nature. Nature's empty words. Okay, we can talk a little bit about nature. People can say, oh, it's nice, etc. But they're not powerful. We can speak about other things, other topics. But when the word of God is spoken, it energises itself in you who believe. The word of God becomes alive. The word of God becomes powerful, life-giving, and grants eternal life to those who believe. St. John, Archbishop of Shanghai and San Francisco, the great Russian saint that died in the 60s, he also, by the way, had a speech impediment. When he used to preach in church, most people couldn't understand him. He used to slur. However, the man was a saint. And those who did listen, it was a bit hard, but those who did listen would feel the power of the words that came from him. Then they said to the woman, now we believe not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard him and we know that this is indeed the Christ, the saviour of the world. We don't believe just because of what you told us, that he told you some secrets. We now have heard for ourselves and we know that he is the Christ, the saviour of the world. See how quickly the multitude outdid the woman who taught them. She said, could this be the Messiah? They say he is indeed the Christ, the saviour of the world. He is the son of God. He is God. They did not call him a prophet or a saviour of Israel, but the saviour of the world. This is the saviour, the only real saviour of all mankind. Many have come in the past, lawgivers like Moses, etc., and prophets and angels have come to help, to help man. But this one is the true saviour of the world. Now, after the two days, he departed from there and went to Galilee. For Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honour in his own country. So he's in Samaria, and now he's going to Galilee, which is further up. 
Um, for Jesus himself testified that a prophet is now on in his own country. Which country? He was, he was born in Bethlehem, which is in Judea, further down, near Jerusalem. What's he mean by his own country? But he was brought up in Nazareth. And where's Nazareth? In Galilee. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans received him, having seen all the things that he did in Jerusalem at the feast. For they had also gone to the feast. At first I got confused with that part, what he means by the feast. Remember that certain times of the year, Jews would travel from all different areas and go down to Jerusalem to the temple. So when the Galileans were down there, they saw Christ at that time, his miracles. But also when he went to Galilee in person, they also saw other miracles that he did. And they believed in him because of these miracles. Now Theophilact says, why does he reveal himself to this woman and not to the Jews who repeatedly demanded, tell us if you are the Christ? Remember if we read the Bible, those of you who read it, um, and those who don't, I have to say that um, I have to do my duty as a priest. If, if you're not reading the Bible, it means you, have dis, you are disinterested in God, in his word, in salvation. And that's sinful. That is really not good. Tell us if you are the Christ. They always would say, tell us if you are the Christ. He said nothing to the Jews because the purpose of their questions was not to learn, but to have as many accusations as possible to bring against him. So they would say, are you the Christ? And if he said yes, they go, oh, you are the Christ, you're blaspheming, and they would try to stone him. They, didn't, they, they weren't interested in learning the Lord reveals himself to the woman, however, because she's honest and questions him with a sincere intent. She questions him with a sincere intent. What does that mean, sincere intent? I've often said a good disposition. A sincere intent is sincerely she wants to learn. She wanted to know the truth. Her mind was both probing and believing. What's probing mean? She was a person who liked to search, who'd like to inquire. What is that? That's why she was asking those questions to Christ. Later on, when she realised that he was a prophet, her questions became spiritual. This is clear from what follows, because after she heard the words, she at once believed and brought others to belief in Christ. The Holy Fathers say, without any signs or miracles, the Samaritans believed and begged him to live with them. But after receiving 10,000 signs and miracles, the Jews drove him away. We've said that. For a man's enemies will be th those of his own household. We see that the Galileans believed in the Lord when he came to Galilee on this occasion because they had seen signs and miracles which he did among them and when he was in Jerusalem. That's why they believed. The Samaritans didn't see any miracles. And, what's, what, and what it says here, but the Samaritans are more praiseworthy than the Galileans. God is more pleased with those who come to him without miracles. Isn't that remarkable? Did you know that? I didn't even know, to be truthful, until I prepared this talk, actually. For they believed in him without the benefit of any signs simply accepting the woman's testimony and hearing Christ's teaching. That's how they believed. 
when I prepared this talk, it, things made more sense. I did actually have some feelings on the topic, but I never really expressed it much to people because people might get scandalised of my thoughts. And I said it to you last time. And that is, I noticed that people who, who have experienced some miracle or something like that and they come to the faith, I always would be quite fearful of those people because those people later on can become and usually do become enemies of God if they don't step up from that level, which we're going to hear more about that later. If they stay on that level of just saying, oh, I saw a miracle, oh, I saw this, or I, I, this, just if they stay on that level, they become dangerous, as we'll see. And that's why St Ignatius uh, says, which I'll repeat, it is important to note that those who believed on account of signs and miracles belonged to a group of believers in Christ who were weak. And a lot of them, the church said, fell away. So the God-man blesses the ones who did not see signs and who believed. Nevertheless, what's his attitude towards those who need signs and miracles? And it says here, St Ignatius says, that he expressed sympathy towards those who, not satisfied with the word, need miracles. Christ prefers those to come to him by hearing the word of God because the word of God also has power, actually more. And it's safer because, yes, you might see a miracle in the Orthodox Church, but you can also see a miracle if you go to India. Supposed miracles there. Others see dreams, others see visions, others float in the air. So sometimes it's very hard to know which are real miracles and which are demonic. Let's look at two examples of this. The first example is the nobleman of Kapanaum. Oh, sorry, are there any questions up to the, the Samaritan on this topic? Not go off into other topics. Any questions or any, did I, anything that I, wasn't, that I didn't make it clear or something? That's good. You're satisfied because the word of God has power. So Jesus came again to Cana of Galilee, where he had made the water into wine. And there was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum. When this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son, who was close to death. So for two reasons does the evangelist remind us of the miracle in Cana, where the water became wine. What's the, what's the reason why all of a sudden in this story... Christ, uh, the, the evangelist John, mentions Cana, where the miracle occurred of the water into wine, the conversion. Why? Nothing in the Bible is insignificant. Everything has meaning. The reason why the evangelist reminds us of the miracle was first to give additional praise to the Samaritans. That's why I did them Samaritans first. Because the Galileans, he said, accepted the Lord because of the signs and miracles he did among them and in Jerusalem, while the Samaritans accepted him solely on account of the woman's testimony and the Lord's teaching. Second, the evangelist shows us that after the earlier miracle at Cana, 
The nobleman held Christ in high regard, but still did not understand his true greatness. So why did this nobleman come to Christ? He either was present at the marriage, where the wine was converted, where the waters got into wine, or he heard about it. Whatever reason, he was his faith in Christ, whatever level of faith he had, was based on the miracles. And as were the Galileans who came to Christ because they had seen miracles. But the Samaritans, which was earlier on, remember this is John chapter 4, 46. The Samaritan story is John chapter 4, 1 to 45. So straight after that, it jumps into this story. Then Jesus said to him, unless you people see signs and miracles, you will never believe. So there, there it is. Unless you people see miracles and signs, you will never believe. So Christ acknowledges that people need signs and miracles to believe. But in a way, he's rebuking them. He's kind of telling them that he's not 100% pleased with that. Because it says here, with the same words, the Lord rebukes the other inhabitants of Capernaum, whom he frequently accused of lacking faith. Christ did not like when people lacked faith. But he understood that some people are weak and they need miracles. One of them was St. Thomas, which we're going to read later on. The nobleman said, Lord, come down before my child dies. The nobleman asks the Lord to come down and heal his son, but the Lord reprimands him for having only partial and not perfect faith. See, he had some faith as what? As a doctor, as a miracle worker, as a teacher. He had something, but not the correct faith. What's the correct faith? That he is the son of God. And and that shows that he didn't recognise Christ as God because he says, come down before my son dies. That shows lack of faith because if he's God, even if he's already died, he can say from where he's standing for the person to rise from the dead, for the child to rise. So this person lacked faith, as we all do, don't we? Evident, so it says he evidently did not believe that the Lord has the power to raise his son from the dead. Jesus replied, you may go, your son lives. See, the man didn't believe that he can, raise, that he can heal even. Remember the other one, the centurion, who was a pagan, we, that we heard last week, last month, he actually believed that Christ could heal from afar. He recognised Christ as God and he was a pagan, which was a knife for the Jews who, who should have known because they had all the prophecies, etc. They had the Old Testament and they should have known that Christ was the Messiah, the Son of God. So here, Christ says, you may go, your son lives. And the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him, and he went his way. While he was still on the way, his servants met him and told him, saying, your son lives. Astounded by the sudden change in the course of sickness, the servants ran out to greet their master with the news of his son's healing. So the servants that were obviously this person, nobleman, he must have been rich, he had servants. And um, when they saw that the boy got better... They ran out to tell the master and say, look, you know, he's bad. The boy did not recover gradually, which we heard last month. 
in the usual manner of recovery. When Christ did miracles, it was instant. Actually, in that um, the Catholic new saint, Mary MacKillop, that was actually interesting. I um, forced myself to watch it. And they actually said there that the miracle has to be instantaneous and it has to be something which is obvious that it was a miracle. And they picked two miracles, they said. One miracle, she's blessed. If she does two miracles, then she's a saint. In the Orthodox Church... Uh, and, and one thing that was very interesting, they said that they had to examine all her life and all her letters to see whether she's a real saint, to see if she did anything wrong. When I heard that, I said to myself, what are they saying? To see if she had done anything wrong, because if she had done something wrong, then she's not a saint. So her letters were perfect and her life was perfect. Like God. But in our, in, in our lives as saints, we see that there are people that were prostitutes and harlots and kings that fell, that fell into heresy and then they repented and they came back and then they, and then they repented and then they um, confessed orthodoxy, etc. And that's what I've been trying to say for many years, that Western spirituality is distorted. Western spirituality is distorted because that's what they think. And that's how people believe, because people are, some people send their kids, unfortunately, to Catholic schools, and they learn these things, or they see things on TV, don't read anything of orthodoxy. Um, we seem to know, people seem to know more about the Catholic Church than what they know of their own church, which is, which is ridiculous. And people hear that a person is a saint if he does nothing wrong. What's this perfection? See, that already shows that their understanding of spirituality is wrong. Because they're teaching people to believe that a saint is someone who never sins. Does that mean I'm putting her down? Well, sounds like she, was, she had virtues, she, had, she was brave, she had a lot of things... They recognise her as a saint, they can recognise whoever they want. But these people have not available to them the mysteries that are given from the Orthodox Church. And people can be virtuous, virtuous, naturally as well. Some people, St John of the Latter says, are naturally meek. Meek, meaning they don't get angry. Not because they're spiritual. That's the way they are. They're, they're born like that. They just don't get angry. Some people are naturally not inclined to sexual desires. What are we going to call them? Um, uh, 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 a great holy virgin saint or something like that. And we're going to compare them to the saints who had desires but de um, declined to um, fulfil them. That's when it's virtuous, when someone's angry and they fight not to be angry. Or when someone is, is inclined to certain passions, but they don't do them and they struggle with the passion. In the canons of the Orthodox Church, there is a, there's one canon there which says, whoever esteems, whoever looks up to a saint, in inverted commas, 
outside of orthodoxy is to be condemned. So you have to be careful. Francis of Assisi and all these saints are not saints of the Orthodox Church and therefore we are forbidden to have their icons and pray to them, etc. You can, you can say, oh, they were, you know, some of them, oh, they did good things, but they're not saints of the Orthodox Church. We have thousands and thousands of saints. It's not as if we're going to say, oh, the Catholics, they're so lucky they've got a saint, but we've got thousands of them. Why don't we have enough of them for you? Then we have to run to things. Soon we'll be looking up to um, Muhammad. So astounded by the change in the course of the sickness, the people ran out, and the and the miracle was was evident. Just one other thing: when when we have saints like Saint John, Saint Nectarius, and all these great saints that we've got in the Orthodox Church. When you read their life at the back, there's pages and pages and pages of miracles. Just pages of them. So according to, to Catholic um, spirituality, that means that St. Nectarius won't be called saint because he's done more than two. So we divide, say he's done a couple of thousand, so he'll be saint, 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 and I can't be here all night to say it. So what we'll do is we'll use mathematics and say saint to the power of 100 or something. So he's a saint, he's, a, he's called saint to the 100th power. So when he inquired as to the time when his son got better, they said to him, the fever left him suddenly at the seventh hour. Seventh hour? Around just after lunchtime. Then the father realised that this was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, your son lives, and he himself believed and his whole household. As mentioned, his faith was partial, but had he not believed, he would not have approached the Lord, one might object. Now, some people might say, oh, why has he been put down? He still had some faith because he came to Christ. Listen to what the Father say and actually say, listen, when his child is desperately sick, a loving father leaves no stone unturned. If there's no doctor he fully trusts is available, he'll resort to one less skilled. What does that mean? So let's look on the doctor level. Your child is sick. You know there's a really fantastic doctor, but you can't get in. So where do you go? You go to another doctor, which isn't that good, but he's still a doctor. You just go. And the same here. This person, had his, had his son was sick. So he didn't go to Christ because he thought Christ was God or something of the greatest. He went because he was desperate. So let's see what the father say. If no doctor he fully trusts is available, he will resort to one less skilled. The nobleman did approach with faith, we admit this, but listen, but with faith so cold and imperfect, it barely deserves the name. When the nobleman learned the hour at which his child was restored to health, he believed completely in the Lord. Thus Christ healed both the boy's fever and the father's lack of faith. So they, here the fathers say, yeah, he had some faith, but it was cold and imperfect. However, look what, look what God did here. He took the imperfect and made it to grow into something perfect. 
In other words, it shows that God has sympathy for those who need miracles to believe. And that's why he said in the beginning, he said, unless you people see miracles and signs and wonders, you will never believe. He did say in a way of a reprimand. He was saying that in a way you shouldn't be like that. However, he gave in to them. He condescended. He says, I will give you. If that's what you need, I'll give it to you. Why? Because God is love. And God wants to bring everyone to the to, to, to him. This again is the second miracle that Jesus did when he had come out of Judea into Galilee. The, by pointing out that this was the second miracle worked in Cana, the evangelist stresses again the Samaritans that are worthy of much praise. It keeps on going back to the Samaritans. What's this telling us? In the beginning of this section, they say this was that he already had done the miracle, the Christ did the miracle when he converted the water into wine. At the end of this section, he says this is the second miracle which Christ did when he had come out of Judea into Galilee, through Samaria, of course. Why? To show that the Samaritans believe with no miracles, while the Galileans here believed because of the first miracle of the wine and the second miracle now of the nobleman's son. Is that obvious? Is that obvious? I mean, to me, I think it's quite um, powerful what is being said here and something which I'm sure people didn't know, including myself to some degree, that God lowers himself. Yes, he condescends, means he shows, he allows these things to occur even though he prefers not to. The second example was Apostle Thomas, but we're going to have the, the break um, because I think sandwiches that are a little bit chilly are better than soggy, warm sandwiches. So what we'll do is we'll end this and we'll come back to Apostle Thomas and then we will go on, for those who will stay, to the section here which is those who specifically rejected Christ's word and teach and, and miracles. Okay, have a break. I have two, um, usually at the break I like to do recommendations. I have two recommendations. The first one is the, the Orthodox Study Bible, which is a hardcover, Old and New Testament, and... It's not the same as Theophilact, which it was good to hear that only, I've only got four and they're all sold out, but some, some more are coming next month of the um, interpretations of the Gospels. But this one here, for example, the Gospel of St. John, and every so often they've got some little notes down the bottom. So, uh, and the and this is based on the New King James. However, where necessary, I think they've changed a few things, like a young woman shall conceive, when it should be a virgin shall conceive, but, you know, Protestants don't like some things, so they change it. And the part about more than that, blessed is are they who hear the word of God and do it, while they have rather, which, you know, there's a few things like that. 
So that's strongly recommended, and that can be basically your Bible. And I know some of you got the soft cover, but if you've got this, then this is your Bible, basically. And it's an Orthodox study Bible, and that's recommended. The other recommendation is um, you've got here a choice. Now, as you know, Choice is a magazine which is for consumers. That's why I say call it Choice, so you, could, so you can choose. And they've got all tests. So in this month, they had um, AV receivers, vacuum cleaners, ceiling fans, air conditioners, electric ovens, digital video recorders. They talk about home loans, they talk about credit cards, they, even hair loss treatments. Then salt, if it's no good for you and all that, the hidden traps... And how satisfied are you with your bank? So then they have, um, yeah, all those things. So that's another good magazine. So, of course, some of you might think that I might have lost my mind, so why am I actually advertising the Choice magazine? The reason why I'm advertising the Choice magazine is to make a point. And the point is that... For example, when we had to buy a fridge a few years ago, I looked it up and read a few reports of which fridges and which ones had trouble, because you don't want to buy a lemon, do you? You don't want to buy something which is going to break down or something which, at the end, when you open up the freezer, looks like the North Pole. So you want to have something which is, you know, they talk about, um, they talk about health, financial, etc. Is anything wrong with that as Orthodox Christians? Well, no, because it's good to know. But it's the same way as what people look up the internet and buy magazines and some people, when they're going to buy a car, they'll read NRMA reports and other people read all these other things, on uh, all these reports and research, etc. And you do that. But how, many peop- but how many people investigate the holy words like that? Like the Samaritan woman who was probing and inquiring to find out what is the meaning of that? What does it mean in the Bible, this? And what do the fathers say there? So we put our trust in these people, which by coincidence actually are just down the street from where from our monastery, they're in Marrickville, and um, they have there all their little, little rooms and they do all their washing machine tests and all those type of things. And we trust those people. Well, we trust them, but we don't trust the Holy Fathers and we're not interested we're worried that if we buy a car, which is a dud, but are we worried that we might lose out, that we don't want to miss out, we don't want to spend 40000 or 50000 on a car and it's a piece of rubbish, or that we don't want to do a medical procedure which could be no, no good when you can do other research. They sometimes have things on medical, but there's other magazines on medical, there's alternative, there's herbs, vitamins, etc. And everyone reads about these things. People that are suffering from arthritis... They go to the doctor, the doctor gives them medicines which burn holes in their stomach. So what do they do? They go and look at alternatives. Nothing wrong with that. If that's what you want, it's one. But nothing for the word of God. And, you know, it's a very, very big sin when we disdain, when we have no interest in the word of God. So we can be, I can be politically correct and say it in a nice way, or I can say it the way it is. And the way it is, and I'll say it clearly, that those not interested in studying the word of God are not interested in salvation. 
St. Ignatius Branchinov says, those who are not interested in prayer, those who do not pray, cannot be saved. He says it straight out. Why? Because prayer means communion with God. It's like you say, I want to marry you, I love you, I want to be with you, but I'm going to live in another, in another country. See? So we say, I love God, I want to be with God, but I'm not going to have communion with God, no relationship with God. And we, get, and we receive that through the mysteries, through prayer, through the word of God. When people meet, when people meet each other, when a, when a young man meets a young woman and they fall in love and they say, or whatever they do, whatever they fall in love or whatever, they're attracted to each other, they become interested in each other. I believe love comes more later, but anyway. And they start to say, tell me all about yourself. I want to know about you. So where did you go to school? What did you do? What's your interests? What's your dislikes? That's what people do. That's why the Holy Fathers say that Christ specifically used he, the, um, about the woman's husband. It was also symbolic because our husband, because our soul we call is the bride of Christ, our husband, meaning for everyone, is God. And just like we can say, oh, look, she had all these husbands and she wasn't, she didn't, she wasn't proper, and the fathers say, but are we proper? Do, are we loyal to our groom, to, our, to, the, to, the, to, to the person who we're supposed to love, which is God? And that's why he could have used another thing. He could have said, your house is over there, or your mother's this, or your, you know, you've got a brother. He could have used anything, but he didn't use that. He used specifically the husband. And then the, the fathers go on to five husbands, meaning the five senses, sight, hearing, touch, etc., that, that we're more interested in the sensual part of life, but not the spiritual. So that's why, you know, whether you get this magazine, to truly I don't really care, but I was just... Um, did it on purpose, but it was good to see your faces where you actually thought maybe he's lost it. Now, now Thomas, called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. Now, why was he called the twin? The fathers say perhaps this was a, uh, this, that his name, twin, Didymos, was given to him by mysterious and incomprehensible providence, by God's providence, to signify two parts of his character. One, that he was a doubting person and he had faith. But he, he had both, doubt and faith. He was not with the disciples, because it says here that, that he was not with the disciples when Christ came on Easter, on, on the resurrection on the day, in the room. But he wasn't there and it says there the Father said perhaps he had not returned because remember that the apostles scattered after Christ was captured by the Jews to be crucified. So... The other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were, he, says, he actually says, I want to put my fingers in the, the holes of Christ's in his palms and put my hand into his side where the spear went in, I will not believe. Thomas Thomas, sorry, was a doubter by nature. He doubted the news brought to him by the others and his doubt made him excessively inquisitive. Is that good? We say if you have to be searching, probing, 
but sometimes we can overdo it where we just how and why and it becomes a bit too much. How did Thomas know there were wounds in Christ's hand and side when he wasn't there? He wasn't in the room on that seven day, eight days earlier. And the father said, because the other disciples told him Christ wanted these wounds to be on him when he rose from the dead as, and where he is in heaven now, he still has those wounds to show us the love that he had for man. How did Thomas know there were... Yes, because the, um, Thomas was not gullible. In other words, he was not a person who overly trusts people. He wasn't a person who was naive and can be easily deceived, which is a sign of light-mindedness. When someone just believes anything and everything, we call them light-minded. Some of the people can say they're stupid. But he was thick-headed because of his stubborn resistance to the truth. Now, is it right to say that St Thomas, a great apostle, one of the twelve, is thick-headed? Is that correct to say that? Because remember, according to Catholic theology, the saints have no faults. But here we see that Thomas perhaps had a fault that he was doubting. Well, let's have a look. Let's see what St. Nicolai writes. That Thomas was a witness of the raising of Lazarus and the raising of the widow's son at Nain, which we heard last month, as he was a witness to all the great miracles that Christ performed over several years. He knew of Christ's prophecy that he would rise on the third day. Now he hears from his ten friends, because Judas had gone, that the Lord had appeared to them alive and had shown them his wounds. He heard that Peter and John had found the tomb empty and may also have heard this from the myrrh-bearing women. He had heard that Mary Magdalene had seen the risen Lord and that she had spoken with him. He had also heard that two disciples while travelling to Emmaus, which we read last month, had seen the living Lord. Thomas had seen and known all this but does not believe it at all. Now, he doesn't believe that Christ rose from the dead. He does not believe it because he has not seen the risen one. He wants to see him. He makes it clear that his unbelief extends even to touching Christ's wounds. Not enough just to see. He, that's, that's not enough for him. He actually goes in further and goes, I want to touch. From a human point of view, this is rare, after seeing all that, and unimaginable stubbornness and persistence in unbelief. That's how the fathers, well, that's how St. Nicholas writes, and St. Nicholas, of course, writes from the Holy Fathers, that this is wrong. How can he, how can he um, after seeing the miracles for three and a half years, he was a witness, he was present. And not only that, he wasn't present when the other apostles, three of the apostles, were present in the room where Christ raised the little girl from the dead. He wasn't there, but he obviously heard about it. But nowhere in the Gospels does it say that he said, I didn't see that. So even that he believed, because he wasn't present. Nowhere in the Gospels does he say that he caused this fuss like he's causing now. And after eight days, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas was with them, though the doors were locked. Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be unto you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, see my hands. 
reach out your hand and put it into my side and be not faithless but believing. The explanation goes, why does the Lord wait eight days before appearing to him? Why does he not appear earlier? There are four reasons. One, he waited eight days, remember? So on Sunday of the resurrection, Christ appeared to the apostles in the room. Eight days later, which we call Thomas Sunday, he appeared again, specifically for Thomas, to allow time for each of Thomas's fellow disciples to tell him what they had witnessed. Hearing the same story from each one individually made him more willing to believe and increase his desire to see the Lord. So hearing the stories from the other ten, this would help him to perhaps come more of a thing and say, oh, I want to see as well. Helped him to have more of a desire. To teach his disciples patience and endurance in prayer as a means for bringing their friend to faith. For the disciples must have been praying that the Lord would appear again for Thomas's sake. The other disciples were praying because they wanted their friend to come to faith in the resurrection of Christ, which he didn't have. He didn't have it. He says, I don't believe. So they, from their love, were praying for their friend and God wanted to teach them patience. And that's why I say to people, when they say to me, I pray for my brother or I pray for my father or my child or my husband or my wife, etc. And it says here, why does Christ not answer our prayer straight away? Because he wants to teach us patience and endurance to keep on praying and not to give things straight away if it's not suitable for you and for the person that you're praying for. Number three, so that disciples would realise their helplessness and the impossibility of doing this without Christ's help. So Christ also wants them to see that without him, in other words, without God's grace, our prayers not only are worthless, we can't do anything to help a person come from unbelief. How do we try to change people? Through yap, 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 all the time. Go up, yap, yap, talk, talk, tick, tick. You know, the Bible says this, let's do this. You know, you should be changing, you should be doing this. But here, okay, the apostles told him what happened and then they started to pray for him. But not only that, it says here, they saw that the Apostle Thomas will not come to faith without the grace of God. And number four, to use... Before I go on, I think what happens is that we all a lot of times believe, even St John of Cronstadt, where he says, when I try to help someone from my own powers, I become terrorised. I, then I muck it up. I cause the person even to become terrorised. He goes, but when I pray for the person, I'm at peace and there's more chance of the person to be helped. We have to understand people don't come to faith through force. People come to faith through grace of God. We can't force a person to believe. We can't force a person to stop fornicating. We can't stop a person smoking or on drugs. We can't force anyone to do anything. A person comes to that by the grace of God. Of course, we can help the person, suggest to a person, try and encourage a person, but you can't force a person. And that's what we're learning here from St. Thomas. 
Apostle Thomas, that he couldn't be forced. Number four, to use Thomas's example of unbelief for the belief of many. For God often, in his wisdom and love for mankind, corrects our evil ways and turns them for good. Not that God made St. Thomas to have unbelief, but St. Apostle Thomas had the unbelief from himself. But God takes this wrong thing, corrects it, helps the person who's in error, and helps others through the example of that person. See, that's how the wisdom is. In order to show that he was invisibly present eight days earlier, when Thomas had expressed this belief, the Lord does not wait for Thomas to speak. You see, as soon as Christ came into the um, room where the apostles were hiding because they feared the Jews, they saw what they just did to Christ, so they, they were scared, Christ said that the time will come when those who kill you will think they're doing service to God. The Jews at the time thought that they were doing service to God by killing Christ and they wanted to kill his apostles, their disciples as well. So here it says that he wanted to show to Apostle Thomas that he was in the room, Christ was present invisibly and he proves this because as soon as he comes in the room, he doesn't let Thomas say, can I touch you? Straight away he says, put your fingers here, put your hand in my side. In other words, I know that's what you said because I was present when you said it because I am God. It is clear from the above that Christ is reprimanding Thomas because his doubt was caused by lack of faith and not, as many say, that he was careful. Some people try to say like, the Catholic spirit, which is, well, not that he'd really doubted, but he just wanted to check the facts to try, and it says here, to make, to make, um, to put Thomas in a better light, to excuse him in a way, because how can a saint have unbelief? But in the Orthodox Church, we don't have such stupidities. See, um, because how do we know that Christ was reprimanding him because he said, after he said, put your fingers here, put your hand in my side, and he said, be not faithless, but believing. Don't be faithless. Don't be an unbeliever, but be a believer. See how the Lord appeared the second time, especially for Thomas, for the sake of one man, one sinner, and that in his love for mankind, he does not turn away from any humiliation or effort, this is the one one can say the trouble that God went to, the effort that God went to to help this person who had the weakness of unbelief. He went to these. He went to this measure, and Thomas answered and said to him, "My Lord and my God." But as soon as Thomas touched the Lord's side, he was revealed as a great theologian proclaiming the two natures, because he said, "My Lord and my God." Thomas refers to the human nature of Christ, calling him Lord, like I said before, for the term Lord, Kyrios, is applied not just to God, but to men as well. Remember Mary Magdalene when she was in the garden and thinking that Jesus was the gardener, she said, Sir, Kyrie in other words, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away, which shows that when she said Lord, it doesn't mean that she's talking to Christ as God because she didn't even know that, that was Christ, she thought it was the gardener. So Kyrie, sir, as we read in the Bible, does not mean God. 
in this case, I mean, other, at times it does, but we say, Lord, have mercy. There are times when we're referring to Lord as God and times as Lord as to a human. In this case, St. Thomas said, Lord, my Lord, human. But when Thomas cries out, and my God, he confesses Christ's divine essence and he confirms that the names Lord and God refer to one person, the same person. The Apostle Thomas, because of his fearless... So in other words, Lord, my Lord and my God. You are my Lord, you are human, but you are also God. You are perfect God, you are perfect man, in the same person. Christ as one person, but two natures. And that's why we never, ever accept the blasphemy of the ecumenists of today who say that because this was proclaimed in the Fourth Ecumenical Council. The Fourth Ecumenical Council proclaimed that Christ is perfect God, perfect man. But the monophysites, Coptics, etc., they, they didn't accept the Fourth Ecumenical Council. They said that Christ's human nature was absorbed by his divine nature, so they believe that Christ has only one nature, divine. And that is heresy. What the ecumenists, the orthodox ecumenists are saying, is that the Fourth Ecumenical Council, that there was a problem. Because the Coptics of that time, the Monophysites spoke Arabic or whatever they spoke, Egyptian, Coptic language, I think they've got. And the Ecumenical Council was in Greek, as was the first, second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, all in Greek. There was a problem with communication, that there was a, a problem with communication. And in reality, the Coptics were saying exactly the same as the Orthodox. So the Ecumenical Council, the fourth, was a mistake. The Holy Spirit made a mistake. Because when we say ecumenical councils, we mean the authority is from God. We can never change what the, the dogmas which the, which the ecumenical councils confessed. And they say it was a mistake. And that there's going to be union. That the orthodox will, re, will join with these... Um, people who do not recognise the fourth ecumenical council. By the way, they don't recognise the fifth, they don't recognise the sixth, and they don't recognise the seventh. They only recognise the first three councils. So the orthodox, some orthodox, which are, which are truly orthodox, said, you must confess the fourth, the fifth, the sixth, and the seventh. And they said, no, we will not confess the fourth. But the question then says... But if you say that it was all a language problem and that you really believe in the same thing as we do, then why don't you confess the fourth? What does that show? That they don't believe in the two natures of Christ. Blasphemies are everywhere. And some people say, oh, because they're saying these things, that means you should run away and go to other churches, etc., some people go to old calendars, some people go here, some people go there. But the point, of the, 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 the point of the matter is the church over the centuries has always had problems 
with heretics within her ranks. Because these people, even though they're hierarchs or whatever they are, they're heretics, but they're in the church. And if you read the history of the church, you'll see that we had hierarchs who were teaching heresy, who were still officially part of the Orthodox Church, who ordained, who ordained priests and deacons, etc. And many of those who they ordained are saints of the Orthodox Church. But we're going to come to that, if God, God willing, in the future. So as Orthodox Christians who listen to the talk and those who are here, we confess two natures, perfect God and perfect human, and not as those who do not confess the fourth commandment council who believe in their own distorted, corrupt, demonic way. Now, St. Thomas, after he went through this trial of unbelief, etc., etc., and then he did finally get what he wanted, he wanted to touch Christ, he did touch Christ, and later on he became a great apostle where he went and he became fearless in his preaching of Christ as the risen Lord, and he went as far as India, and there he was condemned to death because of his faith in Christ as God, and he was executed, five soldiers speared him right through, and he died. So he didn't just stay on the level of, I saw a miracle, I saw Christ, I felt his wounds, but he went up. He went up, meaning that he took that, and then he started to improve spiritually. He didn't just stay on the level of just miracles like we're going to hear more and more, as other people did. Then Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are they who have not seen and yet have believed. So you, you, it's like Christ is saying, you, Thomas, have believed me more by your senses, by your eyes, than by your spirit, you wanted to convince yourself through your senses, and so I've given you the chance to do this. And now you have been convinced just by seeing and touching me. But blessed are they who have not seen and yet have believed. That is, those who have not seen with their eyes, but have discerned in their spirits, like the Samaritans who sensed in their spirit from listening to God's t Christ's teaching, they felt that this is the Son of God. No miracles. They sensed in their spirit. Blessed are they who come to faith in Christ and his gospel without seeing him with their eyes or touching him with their hands. In other words, I'll read that again. That is, those who have not seen with their eyes but have discerned in their spirits and believed with their hearts. That's who Christ praises, see? Thomas, yes, you have believed. Fair enough. However, blessed are they who have not seen and yet believed. Still Thomas is blessed because at the end he believed. But Christ is saying, far those who are of greater blessing is those who have not seen he is not depriving Thomas of his share of blessedness, but encouraging all who have not seen. Christ praises those who will believe without seeing, declaring them to be truly blessed. In other words, for those in the future, for those who do not see Christ in the flesh as they did, 
Some people say, oh, I wish I lived in the time of Christ, then I would believe. But Christ is saying, not necessary. Because far, far better are those who, through faith, believe. In other words, they believe in something they haven't seen. They are truly blessed. Do you see, O reader, how in order to save one doubting soul, St. Theophilac says, the Lord did not spare his own dignity, but condescended to bear his side. Neither should we despise even the least of our brethren. In other words, yes, Thomas was sinning in his excessive doubt, which was a beyond, beyond reason after he saw everything. He should have believed. However, Christ, in his love, lowered himself and says, okay, he wants to touch me, I will bring myself down to that level even though all the angels in heaven worship me even though I'm the creator of heaven and earth I will do that because that's what he wants and he got what he wanted and that's what what is Saint Theophilus saying all the fathers they're saying just like that that Christ went to all that trouble one can say all that effort to bring this person to faith we should also make attempts to bring a person to faith, but obviously in the right way, which I've said before. And what did the disciples do? They didn't say continually, the other apostles, you must believe, you must believe, you must believe. We saw him, we saw him, you've got to believe and go on and on and on like tape recorders. They didn't do that. They said, we have seen, they gave the account and then they prayed for him with patience and knew we can't do anything. It's all up to God. It's a gift from God. However, for God to give that gift of faith to someone, the person has to be in a better position. It took eight days in this case. But at the end, when he was ready, then Christ gave him what he wants. St. Nikolai writes something deep, very theological. He writes regarding the Apostle Thomas. The most wise Lord therefore did everything possible to satisfy both the spirits... And the senses of his apostles, the spirit to feel the word of God in their hearts, in their souls. But not only that, and necessary to satisfy their senses, to see, to touch if necessary. So that none of them should ever waver in his faith that he, the Lord, was alive and glorified. And although the senses can delude a man, this part is wonderful, and although the senses our eyes and ears, as we've read in the past talks, especially talk 32, 33, 34, where I read all those accounts from Manathos, etc., of how the monks became deluded from hearing, where they thought, oh, I'm hearing, the, I'm hearing prayers from angels, but there wasn't. It was just yap, yap, yap. It wasn't even anything, but they, in their mind, the devils made them believe, or they believed that they saw angels when it wasn't angels. So the senses can delude a person sooner than the spirit. There's less chance of the spirit deluding us than our senses. The generous Lord condescended to human weakness and did everything possible to satisfy also men's sensual understanding and sensual logic. I'm not doing talks here just to stimulate people's interest. You can watch a documentary on the History Channel for that. I'm not, I'm not here for that. I'm here to... Well, my desire 
is for people to hear the word of God and to be affected. Not to stimulate the mind. If you want to stimulate the mind, you can do those new things that they say to help you not get Alzheimer's. You know, the doctors are saying now, play those little computer games and it helps you stimulate your brain so that you don't get uh, Alzheimer's. So you do noughts and crosses, hangman and other stupidities there so you won't get Alzheimer's. But isn't it funny that spiritual people don't seem to get it that much because their mind, their mind and their whole soul is being lifted up by the Spirit of God. That's why we have sometimes 90-year-old 90, 90 hierarchs of the Orthodox Church preaching like Patriarch Paul of Serbia, how old was he? He basically, you know, towards the end, he couldn't run the church anymore, but up to around 90, or close to 90, I think, I'm not sure. It, 92, is that what he died, 92? 93? Yeah, and 92. I don't think he did those games. And other saints as well. We have um, Metropolitan Augustine of Florina, who died recently at 104, and I think he retired in 2000. He retired, in other words, at 94 years old. You know, they've done some research on people that pray and the effect it has on the mind. When you're reading the Word of God and you're studying, when you go to church, not only the mind is working, the whole soul. So don't waste your time on noughts and crosses. So let's go on now. Let us look at some examples from the Gospels of those who rejected Christ's miracles and, or teachings. So we, here's an example of when Christ went to Nazareth. When he had come to his own country, where he had been brought up, he taught them in their synagogue. Remember, Christ was born in Bethlehem, but he was raised in Nazareth, which is in Galilee. And then he went there and he taught in their synagogue. His own country means Nazareth, for he was raised there. He goes to his hometown, knowing well that they would scorn him, that they would disdain, they would mock him, despise him. He knew that. So why go? And there are two reasons for this. One, so they will not be able to say later, oh, if he had come here, we would have believed. No excuse. So Christ, said, Christ went there, so they can't have an excuse to say, well, the reason why we didn't believe is because he didn't come to us. He went to other places, but he didn't come to us. There's no excuse. He went to them. And the second reason, he wanted to reproach them, to reprimand them because of their envious attitude. They were envious. They were jealous of him. And he wanted to expose that. He was teaching in the synagogue, speaking openly in public, so that they can't later on say that he was teaching something against the law, against Moses, against the Old Testament, one can say. So he spoke publicly. So everything has a reason. That's just us from two lines. Look at two lines, what we got. And probably there's much more in other books, but I just summarise. When he had come to his own country, where he'd been brought up, he taught them in their synagogue. And from that, we understand that. Then we go on with the Bible, with the Gospel. So all bore witness in him and marvelled at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. So the people in the synagogue marvelled at the words that came out of his mouth. Now some of you might say, but you just said now that they were jealous of him. Why are they marvelling? 
Well, I'll tell you the truth, I got confused too, because when I'm reading these, I'm saying, which you're going to see in a minute, one thing is said over there, and another thing is said over there, and I get, sometimes I get confused, and I go, oh, I have to try and find the answer. And thanks God, a lot of times, keep on going, the answer comes. So let's have a look. They said, they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and those mighty works? They acknowledged that he had wisdom and that he was doing mighty works. Is this not the carpenter's son? In another gospel it says, is this not Joseph's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers James, uh, Joses, Simon and Judas? And his sisters, are they not all with us? Where then did this man get all these things? So they were offended at him. So first they marvelled, now they're offended. Why? Does that interest you? Why are they offended? Why is there, like, it sounds like a, contradict, a contradiction that they marvelled? They said, like, oh, look at that. Look, look, he's, look at the words that he's saying. The gracious words coming out of his mouth. Look at the miracles that he's doing. This is marvellous. And then after that it says, and they're offended. They were scandalised. Do you know the answer? No. Do I know the answer? No. So the point is, then why am I bringing that up if I don't know the answer? I don't know the answer. The fathers know the answer. I'll read what the fathers say. If you asked me this a month ago, I would say to you, I don't know. You see, I'm not Protestant. With Protestants, when you ask them a question about something from the Bible... They just, they just say, oh, that means... They just start speaking. But we also have Orthodox Protestants too, people that are in the Orthodox Church who act in the same way. You ask them, what does that mean in the Bible? And they just start yapping away. They don't even know what they're talking about. And I don't like that. I feel extremely comfortable. Actually, I feel good when someone says to me, what does that mean? And I say to them, I don't know, I have to read the fathers. I don't know. If I know, I'll tell you. But if I don't know, I'm all right. What does that mean? Oh, look, he doesn't know. Oh, look at that priest. He doesn't know what, what's the answer, this and that. That's um, some Western view that um, saints know everything or something or priests should know everything or all these ri- ridiculous things. I don't know. But the fathers know. Let's see what the fathers say. When the multitude heard the teaching spoken by Christ, they marvelled at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. Why did they marvel? Because he was from a poor family and therefore would not have been able to have studied. They had no money to send him to study. So how did he then know these words? Because yes, people went and studied, but you needed money to study. They marvelled and yet they mocked him. So first they marvelled because of that. Not because they marvelled because they were really amazed. They go, well, how, did, how does he know that? I remember once a priest told me that he had to deal with this woman who asked him some questions about upbringing of children. She asked these questions to this priest, and then the priest answered. And this priest hadn't read any books about that. He just answered as God enlightened him. And she said, far out, how do you know all these things? I read so many books on children and upbringing and all these things, and how do you know? And she got offended. She actually became offended. 
Instead of saying, oh, that's good, the priest knows and can give me some answers to help me and can make sure that what I'm reading, that I'm putting it in an orthodox perspective, because not everything that's written by people about children is right. Sometimes it's wrong. There's some, there are some vile things that are written in some very good books, but there are some sections there where they talk about um, self-abuse and other things that go, it's all natural, and this and other things that they say there, which I don't want to go into detail, but uh, they say wrong things. So when you've got an orthodox, you can go to the orthodox priest and ask. I read this in the book. Is that correct? Is that orthodox? Is that, is that how we should look at it? But she was jealous because she said, how do you know these things? I read all the books. They were offended as well. They were offended. They said, how does he know? Who's he to know these things? They marvelled and yet they mocked him by saying, is this not the carpenter's son? When You see, we read it and go, is this not the carpenter's son? And we think to ourselves, oh, they're just saying he's the son of the carpenter. But no, it was said in a, in a way that was low to put him down. Like people today, they might say... Um, about someone, they go, oh, he's, he's, um, his family, oh, they're, um, they're low down, they, they, um, they come from the village or something like that. I remember once the wife of a priest was talking about certain people, and oh, they're peasants. They are peasants. Disdain, you see, so we look at people. Or we might, and then we go on to the intellectual level. I studied at Sydney Uni. Where did you study? Oh, Western Sydney. <laughs> oh, yes, that's right. Oh, Western Sydney. All oh, right, that's out there. Do you, do you have to catch an aeroplane to go there? Is it a bit far? No, it's at Campbelltown. Oh, Campbelltown. Mm. Campbelltown. Is that that really poor area up there? You know, that's, so it's all putting down, etc., etc. So we see that everywhere. It's not just here. So I'm just give, giving you these examples to get the point across. And I think from the reaction that I got the point across. So they were saying, isn't this not the carpenter's son? But how could Joseph's occupation make the Lord less wondrous or less worthy of respect? All right, he's the carpenter's son. But apart from that, don't they see the things he was doing? Did they not hear the things he was saying? Why then do they mock his father? Which is not really his father in reality, but, but to them they thought he was his father. The Nazarenes were foolish to think that low birth and plain ancestry hinder anyone from pleasing God. And they're hypocrites as well, let me add, because the, the King David, who they look up to and they love, was a shepherd and he never studied. And others, probably other prophets as well. So it's just, um, you know, even today we see people in the Orthodox Church, even clergy, priests, they go, oh, yes, does he have a degree, a theological degree? Does he have a theological degree? But does, did Paisus have a, uh, did all the Paisus have a theological degree? Some did. St. Nectarius did. St. John, Archbishop of Shanghai, San Francisco, they had theological degrees. But they weren't defiled by studying to become proud like demons. They had spirituality. But others that study become proud and put down everyone else. Oh, he doesn't know and he doesn't know. By the way, I have no theological degree. So I hope that doesn't scandalise anyone. That's why a lot of times sometimes I can't pronounce the words because I, you know, like there's... Um, 
like later on we're going to know there's some words, some towns or some expressions. Because when I came to the church, I went to the Greek church and therefore I heard everything in Greek. I was never brought up in an English environment. So a lot of these things that I read, I've never really heard from anyone. It's only what I've read. But when you study, you might learn a few more words. But I'll tell you one thing, I'd rather say the words wrong than go to some of the theological schools which exist today and come out like Stalin, who also went to some type of ecclesiastical school and later on became... But not all of them. Some of them come out pretty good. Not many, but... Actually, Elder Joseph, in his book, he speaks a lot about don't go and study, it can wreck you up. I heard that Elder Ephraim in in, um, America, Arizona, that when people go and ask him advice, he he tries to say, there's no need to go to university to get these degrees. It's not necessary to get these theological degrees because theology is learnt from struggle from spiritual struggle. Theology is learnt through prayer. Theology is learnt through humility. You can go and learn all the things you want from these theological academies, but if you do not have humility, then you become, and I'm not saying this in a, in a disrespectful way, people become demons, proud, horrible, and those people are the ones who today are the ecumenists of the church, a lot of them. Let us suppose, like in the old days, they used to pick people from the monasteries. I'm not saying this because I'm interested, I'm not, never interested in becoming. But in the old days, they used to pick people from the monasteries, holy people to become um, bishops, leaders of the church. Today, you can't become a bishop if you've got no theology degree. So not if you've got the, uh, a theology degree of the monastery, which is prayer and struggling with passions, humility, repentance, not faith. No, to become a bishop today, you have to have a theological degree, masters and doctorate. And then you can become a bishop. And then we wonder why the church is full of ecumenists. Let us suppose that Jesus was simply man and not God. Let's go along with them. Okay, they didn't understand that he was God. The, the Nazarenes. But what would have prevented him from being a great wonder worker? A prophet, for example. Like the other prophets of old, which they know about, because they, they, they hear about it when they go to the synagogue. So they show themselves to be foolish and spiteful. Instead, they should have taken pride in the Lord as one who brought honour to their city by his teachings and miracles. To say, look at the type of man that we have had here that was brought up in our city of Nazareth this man who teaches and does all these miracles but no they didn't have that they were they were spiteful but instead they despised him for his humble birth such a great evil is envy in other words jealousy resentful that they were resentful of him they were jealous of him they hated him for it always casts good things into darkness. When a person's jealous, when a person is envious, which we all suffer from, when we're under that passion, at that time, we can't see the good in anything because that passion overrides and it makes us spiritually blind. It is indeed the truth to say of them, Behold, a foolish and senseless people who have eyes and see not and have ears and hear not. That's what Jeremiah says in the Old Testament. They have eyes, but they don't see. See what? 
See them, see the miracles. Have ears and hear what? Hear the word of God. Even now there are many who slander those of low birth, who in every other aspect are worthy of honour. And just a little example, I remember when I first came into the church, with God's help, I believed that to be spiritual meant knowledge. Because I came out of a Western society, so I believed knowledge. So you read, and that's it. So when you read, you're spiritual. When you know, you're spiritual. And people still have that. And you got to, we have to grow out of that. That's not good to believe that that means spirituality. That a, a person who knows more is a better spiritual person than someone who knows less. But when I went to Manathos, and after a few years of spiritual life, I began to see something different. I began to see that knowledge doesn't help, because we can have knowledge, but it doesn't mean you're going to be saved. I began to see that it was humility which was the most important. And that's when I started to change my view and chase those who were humble, those who were perhaps even uneducated. Remember that Elder Paiusius only went up to a certain grade in primary school. Elder Porfirios was even worse, second class. But they had humility. And because they had humility, they had the grace of God. Then I realised that I was wrong. It's not knowledge which brings us close to God, even though that's important to some extent, but it is humility. Anything which gives us humility brings down the grace of God in our hearts and enlightens us, etc. That's what I began to see was the most important. Give me a person with humility, I will fall at their feet. Give me a person with a theological degree, I won't fall at their feet. If they're humble, then I'll fall at their feet as well. That's how we should think. The obedience, the faith that they have, the obedience, that they were obedient, which is a sign that someone's humble. We can see today in our society that people are disobedient to each other. They cannot submit to anything and proud to say, I am who I am, I'm my own person, I don't listen to anyone. Christ's brothers and sisters were children of Joseph, or, or perhaps first cousins. The Nazarenes also took offence at Jesus, perhaps themselves saying that he was casting out demons, like we read two months ago. So the Protestants like to say that Christ had brothers and sisters, that the mother of God gave birth to others and other stupidities. That is not correct. Now, what do we do if they tell us that? If a person says, oh, no, 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 that's not true, no, Christ had brothers and sisters, that Mary, as they call her, that she gave birth later on to others. What do we answer them? You've seen those protests that sometimes they do in those um, detention camps and other places in America, they do protests, they put tape on their mouth, okay, get your tape out, put your mouth there and tell them, that's it, that's my answer. Nothing. I don't say anything. You don't sow it like some countries do. You just don't say anything. Why? Because they're not asking to learn. Why should you sit down and throw the holies, as the Bible says, to anyone who's not interested? We see Christ to Herod, as I said three months ago, 
remained silent. To Pilate, he said a tiny bit. Why? They weren't interested. And these Protestants or others, in the, when they come to you and start saying, oh, this and that, they're not interested. They're not interested? Don't answer. Because, as Christ says, they will tread on the holy, is what you're saying, which is holy. They'll tread on it, meaning spiritually they will just discard it. And then it says in the Bible they will turn around and rip you apart. What does the rip you apart mean? I learned that many years ago. And sometimes I fall into the trap when I forget myself. What does rip apart mean? I'll tell you what it means from my own experience. I met someone years ago who wanted to talk about something religious or something. So I started speaking to them. They discarded it. Then later on when I walked off, I was terrorised. I was I lost grace. I lost faith. And that's what it means by rip you apart. Spiritually, you lose grace. Once a young man came to me and he was devastated. And he said to me, Father, I fell into a sin, a serious sin, a sin of the... Uh, of the flesh one can say whatever it, whatever it was it was serious I don't know I just thought to myself straight away did you by chance today speak to anyone about religion yeah I did there was this person and I was talking to them and I was trying to help them to see that orthodoxy is the truth and this and that I said okay and then what happened after that because well after that I fell Said, do you know why? He goes, no, couldn't, couldn't connect. I said, because you lost the grace. Because what you said, they trod on. Don't throw the holies to the swine and to the dogs because they'll, they'll tread on it. They'll discard it. And then they'll turn around and rip you apart. You lost your grace. You fell. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. He said to them, you will surely say this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. Whatever we have heard done in Capernaum, you do also here in your country. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honour except in his own country, among his own relatives and his own house. See how Christ did not insult them, but said meekly, without anger, A prophet is not without honour. The study Bible made a reference to that. They make little references here and there. And it said, which I liked, To be able to correct someone with gentleness is a spiritual gift. Remember, meekness is the opposite to anger, irritation, etc. And remember what St. Paul says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, meekness, self-control. In other words, if we believe we have the Holy Spirit, then we have the fruits of the Holy Spirit. Now, let's look and see if we have the grace of God, all of us. Do we have love? Joy, or joy can be confused because people can be joyful just because they love themselves, because they think they're good, and they mix up and think, oh, that's joy. You know, the problems go, I've got joy in the, in the, in the grace of God, they say. Those, those born again, what do they call the ones up there? Um, the Hillsong people, I saw on 60 Minutes, that they're going everywhere around the world, and they're doing concerts which are like heavy metal but singing about God but in a heavy metal way. And there was a person there 
who was bopping his head and he goes, I'm full of the Holy Spirit, right? And he was headbanging that he's full of the Holy Spirit. Sorry? Well, he might have been on something, but he also, probably from the music, and they believe that that feeling that they have is from the Holy Spirit. So it's confusion there. Peace. Long-suffering. What's long-suffering mean? To be patient with people. To love someone, not because you're going to get something out of them. To be long-suffering with their mistakes, like a couple. How many couples have long-suffering today? It's like, oh, I can't take it. He never takes the garbage out. I'm going to get a divorce. It's not exaggeration. Or the man says she doesn't even cook or doesn't do this, doesn't do that. Long-suffering means to be suffering because of a person's mistakes. God is long-suffering. Kindness. To be kind to people, not because you're going to score something from them. Goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That's the spirit, the fruits of the spirit. Now, when I'm reading this, what am I saying that I've got? No. Because we lack God's grace, because of our sins, because of our slackness, and if we're not struggling, praying, etc., well, we can never get the Holy Spirit, and that's why a lot of times we lack these things. That's a good indication. Now, some people, like some zealots who believe that they're confessing the faith, etc., they believe that they are confessing the faith, um, they might be against ecumenism, for example, whatever, and they're confessing the faith. And they believe that they're confessing the faith like the Holy Fathers did. And those people, a lot of those people that do that, they are so rude. And they think that they are justified to be rude. But St. Paul says that those who have the Holy Spirit are not rude, are not proud, are not envious. And when we read the lives of saints, we see that even though they were confessing the faith and were great saints, they did not have that rudeness. And we see with Christ's example here, of course, which is the perfect example, where there's no rudeness and there's no anger. Now, someone can say, how about when he went into the temple with the whip and he knocked down all the tables, etc.? That is what's called righteous anger but without passion see our children do something wrong then we might shout not that we're angry we can be shouting because you might say don't go there you're going to burn yourself but you're angry but not in the sense of passion where you say oh you brat or i'm sick of you or i you know that you've got passion in you a teacher can correct it doesn't mean he's got passion he can punish but it doesn't mean he's got passion Passion is when you say, I'm, I'm irritated, I'm going to punish them, I'm going to get back at them, I'm going to do this. So that's what we call passion. But Christ, when he, when he became angry, one can say, in the temple, was without passion. And when we hear that, Christ, that, that God might cause an earthquake or whatever, all these things, or allow sicknesses, that's not that he's, we say God's anger, but in reality, as, Saint, as Elder Porfirio says, it's anger without passion that we have, because we're fallen. So, a prophet is not without honour, he says meekly, which is still a reprimand, meaning to be able to correct someone. Yeah, what does that mean? Well, 
For it is our human habit to despise those who are familiar, to give a friendly welcome to strangers, to think about and marvel at the strange and the foreign and the unusual, and to ignore common everyday things. Like what we say, xenomania, people say, oh, they like anything which is exotic, something from overseas. So people, instead of going for a holiday, say, in Australia, where there's so many beautiful places, they say, oh, I'm going to go to Thailand because they wear funny hats and they've got all these special, uh, they've got um, tra traditions. It's different. They've got different food. They want to go to those places, something different. It's just part of nature. I want to do something different. I want to go on a holiday, but I have to catch the plane. I've got to know, I've got to feel that I'm going somewhere else. So they go over to New Zealand, when there's millions of places here in Australia, for example. I don't work for the tourism industry, by the way. I'm just saying that that's just how people um, think. And that's what he's saying here, that Christ was from them. He was like them, so it, they weren't impressed by him. And that's why he said, a prophet, uh, that is why no prophet is honoured in his own country. He added, and in his own house. Because sometimes even your own people disregard He's even his brothers who were of the same house bore him ill will. They were jealous of him as well. That's what now I want to talk a little bit about this sibling rivalry, where brothers and sisters are jealous of each other because one parent shows more to another child. This is actually real. And I've dealt with people a lot who are very sick that were brought up in this type of an environment. It just goes on and on for years. And even as adults, they still say, Oh, my mother loved my sister more. Or they loved my brother more. And all these things. Sometimes it's made up in their heads. But a lot of times it's the parents' fault. I had an example of a person. They had a child and they, had, they gave birth to another one. The child at the time of the birth, the older child was around two and a half. Have you heard the expression green with envy? That child was jealous to the fullest. He would go up and do harm to the child. Because he, he could speak, he would say to the parent, don't carry him, her, or whatever, I can't remember what it was, it was her, don't carry her, he says to the mother, give it to dad and carry me. So it's jealousy, jealousy. When she was breastfeeding, she was jealous. And I had to jump in on the bandwagon and say, okay, firstly, if you don't, if you're not careful, that child will turn out to become a sick, jealous person, which a lot of times they become quite dysfunctional in life. Said, so don't breastfeed the child in front of him because it's going to get jealous. Go in the room and do it. And then later on, put the child down and pick the other child up and show love to the child. Don't have all the time attention with the new child. Do both. Take care of the other one as well. Play with the other one as well. Talk to the other one as well. All these things. Anyway, got um, after a few months, that child lost a lot of his jealousy. I think it might be a little bit there, but I think that's part of his uh, genetics somehow. But the point is, we've got to take notice of these things. People that are jealous, as I said, uni, you know, are people that have got better jobs, oh, my, my brother works in such and such a place, and the people get, the other ones get jealous, oh, he's got a lot of money. Oh, he married a beautiful woman and, and, and then they get, uh, they get bothered with that or married a nice wife or this or that. Or they went, you know, all these things all go on. People have a lot of jealousy because it was never really looked at when they were young. You people who have young children, 
Look at all the passions of your child. Work on all the passions of your child because you're going to have children which are going to grow up to be sick. Really sick. And the TV doesn't help. That's another promoter of schizophrenia. But I tell you truly, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens when the heaven was shut up three years and six months and there was a great famine throughout all the land. But to none of them was Elijah sent except to Zarephath, I can't say that, in the region of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elisha, the prophet, and none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. See, some of these words I can't say. But anyway, we get the point. So the explanation here, which I've read that many times as well, it's as if Christ is saying, if the prophet were to come from somewhere else, they would marvel at him if he came from a, somewhere, like a different place. For example, the widows of Judea did not welcome Elijah, but only the widow of Sarepta accepted him, and she was a foreigner, a non-Jew. In other words, Elijah came and all these widows who were Jews, and they didn't accept him. Why? He was a Jew. They were Jews. They said, oh, what's so special of that? That type of um, madness. But the woman who was a foreigner, she accepted him. And some miracle occurred. And Elisha cleansed the foreign leper, a non-Jew, who showed faith in him. But the lepers who were fellow countrymen, in other words, Jews, who were familiar with him, had no faith in him. So during the time of Elisha, there, was a, there were a lot of lepers. And the Jewish lepers didn't have faith in Elisha who was also a Jew but there was a person there who wasn't a Jew and he had faith and he was cleansed so all of a sudden we've got Christ he's in the temple and he's bringing up to the Jews and saying do you remember the woman who was he or had the miracle was done with this woman by the prophet Elijah, who you respect, Elijah, you respect him, but the woman that he helped was not a Jew. Then he goes on. And do you remember when Elisha cleansed the leper, who was not a Jew, but the ones who were Jews had no faith in him? Likewise, he's like he's saying, my countrymen, I do not seem marvellous to you. Instead, I am despised by you. Therefore, I do not work miracles here. But to those in Kapernaum I appear marvellous, and there I work miracles, and I am accepted by them. So that was like a knife. With meekness, with a purpose. One may say, oh, but he did it to bother them. Yes, but not with passion. He, he did do it to bother them. He did do it to make them react. But not out of passion, not out of revenge, not out of pleasure, but for their good. So all those in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath and rose up and thrust him out of the city and they led him to the brow of a hill on which their city was built that they might throw him over the cliff. Then passing through the midst of them, he went his way. When those in the synagogue heard these words, they were filled with anger when they ought to have marvelled and they attempted to throw him over a cliff because Christ put them on a lower level than the pagans. In other words, it was saying... The woman who was, an, who was a pagan is better than you because she believed in uh, 
Elijah. And the man who was a pagan, the leper, is better than you because he, even though he wasn't a Jew, he believed in Elisha and he was cleansed. And now here you have someone who is speaking far greater than they did and who is doing far greater miracles than those two prophets, but yet you're not believing in me. But to those in Kapanaum, I, am, I appear marvellous. It's another one, Nazareth. There's Kapanaum, is another city. To them, I appear marvellous because I'm not from their area. They accept me better and I, and I work miracles and I'm, ex- am I, and I'm accepted by them. So, although, so when those in the synagogue heard these... Yeah, he put them on a lower level than pagans. Then passing through the midst of them, he went his way not to escape suffering, for he came to suffer for us, but to await the right moment he began to preach. So it wasn't the right time for him to be put to death. When the right time came, he allowed himself to be put to death. Now, remember, in another example last month, where I said that the Jews became so crazy against Christ, they wanted to rip him apart, but some power wasn't allowing them. And the Holy Father said, that should have woken him up and say, oh, look at this, we can't even get to him. He's been protected, which means he must be, at least to say, he must be from God. It must be something special for this power not to allow us. Here, it's the same thing. They went to throw him down, but through some power, they, they couldn't do that. So they should have said, this is not an ordinary person. Perhaps we are wrong by being a... But that's what it says now. Um, I came across a, a woman that um, was an older woman. Um, she's departed now, but uh, I remember her saying... Um, that uh, she knew St. John of San Francisco mm-hmm. and he became canonised and I remember speaking to her uh, and I was amazed that she knew him and she had actually spoken to him and maybe even confessed but I had him as a priest at some, at some place um, maybe he was in China when they were there and she goes mm, don't, I don't, he's made, made him a saint and to me he's just normal. It's just a normal bishop. There's nothing special. You know, she, she sort of couldn't she put him. She put him down because she... she so, you, so what you're saying is a woman who knew St. John, Archbishop of Shanghai, San Francisco, she knew him. She couldn't... She kind of said, why did they even canonise him? He was just an ordinary person. Same thing. He lived with them and they couldn't recognise. A prophet... Because a prophet just means someone who's holy. A prophet is not recognised by their own. A lot of times people, like as I said before, Elder Porfirios lived in Athens. I went to Athens. No one told me that there was a saint living over there. For them, he was nothing. And other times too, and here we have Christ himself, who was from this area, they ignored him because they said, he's nothing special. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. I've mixed a, a couple of Bible verses, as some from, and um, I've mixed them up. There's Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and I've kind of put them together to get a better picture. So he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. He just healed a couple of sick people, nothing overly great. And he marvelled because he couldn't get over how much unbelief they had. He did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief, sparing them 
future punishment in case they remain unbelieving even after witnessing miracles. So that's important. He did not do mighty, many mighty works there, but he did perform a few that they would not have the excuse to say later, if he had done something here, we would have believed him. So there's no excuse. They should have been overcome by his words. They weren't. They should have repented when he gave the examples of Saint Elisha and Elijah, that just like the Jews did not accept them, you also are not accepting me, he's saying. That didn't do it. They tried to throw him over the cliff, but what happened there? They couldn't do it because some force, some divine power, they should have repented from that. Nothing. Another verse, woe to the unrepentant cities. Then he began to rebuke the cities in which most of his mighty works had been done. Rebuke means that he was scolding them, was censoring them, saying that they weren't doing the right thing. Which, which cities? Those where he had done mighty works. And why was he upset, if we can use that word, why was he uh, reprimanding them? Because they did not repent. They should have repented when they saw his, his um, works. Woe to you, uh, Chorazin. That's a word. I had to look it up on the internet, by the way, just in case the theological people here go, oh, he can't even say it. I don't know it in Greek, Chorazin. But anyway, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Ty and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. We've all read that, hopefully. And they're very harsh words. Woe to you. And he's picked, he picked these two cities, the, the uh, Chorazin and Bethsaida. And then he mentions another two cities, that if I did the miracles that I did with you in Tyre and, Tyre and, and, and Sidon, they would have repented, but you didn't. So let's have a look at the explanation. After showing that he had done everything that he ought to have done and they remained unrepentant, then he reprimands them. He rebukes them. Why? Because Tyre and, Sid and Sidon were pagan cities. They were pagan cities. Bethsaida and Chorazin were cities of Judah. They were Jewish cities. The Lord is saying, therefore, that at the judgment it will be more tolerable for the pagans than for you who saw these miracles and did not believe. We have to get that into our, into our heads that those who have not seen, those who do not know, will not be judged the same as those who have. And I'm going to find something here. If the pagans had seen them, they would have believed. And what does it mean by sackcloth? It's like it's, a, it's symbolic of repentance. In those days, if someone was repentant, they'd wear sackcloth, sit in ashes, etc. It's a symbol of repentance and dust, uh, what they put on their heads. And that's to say, they would have done that. But you, but, 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 but you have not done that. Another reason he says that the Jews are worse than the inhabitants of Tyre and Sidon, Sidon is that the Gentile inhabitants of Tyre Tyre transgressed only the natural law, while the Jews transgressed the Mosaic law as well. What does that mean? It means that we have what's called the natural law. All of us have some understanding of God in our hearts, even if you've heard nothing. We have a conscience. We shouldn't kill, shouldn't 
go with someone else's wife and all other things like that. They're all, don't steal someone else's belongings. This is what's called the natural law. But the Jews had what's called the, the, they had the law as well, where it was clear, where God spoke to them. So they had no excuse. Just like today, we Christians have the Bible. The Orthodox Christians have the lives of saints. The Orthodox Christians have the preaching, the talks, explanations of the Bible. For the former, meaning the pagans, did not see miracles, but the Jews who saw miracles and had the Mosaic law have seen and slandered Christ. They became worse. And you, Kapunaum, who are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to Hades. Hades. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I say to you that it should be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. I've often read this, Kapunaum, brought down to Hades. I never understood it. Let's look what it says. Now, why does he say that Kapunaum, you, Kapunaum, who are exalted to heavens... To heaven, because Capernaum was exalted as the city of Jesus, for it was made glorious by the many miracles that had taken place. Christ did many miracles there, and because of that, it should have been looked at as a great city. Yet, just like Bethlehem was great because Christ was born there, well, Capernaum was great because Christ performed many miracles there, yet it derived no benefit. From this, because the inhabitants did not believe even after seeing so many miracles. On the contrary, it is rather because of this that he'd been condemned to Hades. In other words, Christ saying, You're going to go to hell. That while having such a citizen, while having a person like Christ himself living there and doing all this, you derive no benefit. Now, the contradiction, like I said earlier, what I read to you a few minutes ago, it said in the other Bible passage, but to those in Kapunaum I appear marvellous and therefore I work miracles and am I accepted by them. So in this Bible passage, he said, Christ says that in Kapunaum I appear marvellous and I work miracles and I'm accepted by them. But here he says Kapunaum, the people are going to go to hell because they didn't recognise his miracles. And when I read that, I go, okay, this is one of those things that, that it seems contradictory. When we come across these in our, in our life, in the church, you never say it's wrong. You say, like I said, I don't understand it, but there's a reason for it. I don't understand why in that part does it say that and why in that part does it say something completely opposite. Humble, humility, humble. You see, you bow your head and you say, God, I don't understand. You enlighten me. If it's meant to be, you enlighten me. If it's not, well, I'm not ready. Okay, but I believe everything that the Bible says and I know that everything is your word and I know that everything is perfect and there are no mistakes. It's just that I'm stupid and I don't understand everything and that's fair enough. So let's have a look. That's where, so when I was preparing the notes and then all of a sudden I noticed that, I go, oh no, what am I going to do now? It's confused me. Let's go on and see. 
so that you might understand that those who did not believe were not evil by nature, by choice, he calls to mind Bethsaida, because he might say, why does he mention the city Bethsaida? Why not mention some other city? Why does he mention that particular city as one example of those who didn't repent when they saw the miracles? Why? Because Andrew, Peter, Philip, and the sons of Zebedee, James and John, were from that city. Which, and, and what the evangelist is trying to say is, evil does not come from nature. The fathers, sorry, say. Evil does not come from nature. We can't say, oh, that, that city, Bethsaida, they're evil by nature. It wasn't their fault. Or if it wasn't their fault and they can't help being evil, then why did Andrew, Peter, Philip, James and John, who were from that city, repent and come to Christ? So there's no excuse. Evil does not come from nature. But from our own choice, if it came from nature, these apostles too would have been evil. In other words, they chose to follow Christ, the others didn't want to follow him. Now, the answer to the, um, to the question, where is this contradiction? And you, Kapunaum, who are exalted to heaven because you saw all these miracles and heard all my teachings, will be brought down to Hades. Hades, I think the Americans say. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I say to you, be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and for the other pagan cities in the day of judgment than for you. But yet we hear on the other side that thing which says, um, but to those in Kapanuma, I appear marvellous in them. Now, I will explain. Yes, the people in Kapunaum did accept him. They did marvel in truth. They marveled. A lot of them did marvel. And they accepted him as a miracle worker. Okay. They accepted him as a miracle worker. Their marvel was true. While the, the other ones in these, in these cities didn't accept him, they rejected him. Why then does he put down Kapunaum? Because that's it. That's the level. That's as far as they went. They stopped there. They stopped at the level of miracles. That's the end of it. They said, oh, look at the miracles he's doing. That is great. That's fantastic. That's it. But then that's not why Christ does miracles. He wants us to, like St. Thomas, to be lifted up. Okay, St. Thomas wanted to see a miracle. He wanted to see Christ. He did. He wanted to touch Christ. He did. And what happened after that? Then he increased spiritually and became a great apostle. But these people in Kapunaum didn't do that. They stayed on the level of miracles. And that's it. Perhaps that's why maybe Christ said that... that um, uh, more than that, blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Because blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast which nursed you. That's the greatest miracle. That's the greatest miracle. A woman, a virgin, to give birth to God. And then Christ says, more than that, blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. And St. Theophilus says... The Pharisees and the scribes slandered the miracles, but this simple woman praised them. And she also said, Behold, even the breast which he suckled as an infant bear witness. 
He blesses those that keep the word of God, not excluding his mother from that blessing, far from it, but showing that even she would have received no benefit from giving birth to God and feeding him her milk if she did not also possess every virtue. In other words, the whole purpose of the incarnation, the whole purpose of God becoming man, the whole purpose of of waiting for the right time to find the woman who would be holy and would be able to participate in this mystery of the incarnation, that is, that God became man. The whole purpose of that miracle is for people to hear the word of God and to do it. In other words, to lead a spiritual life. It's not enough just to stay on the level and say, the incarnation is the greatest thing that God became man and he was in the womb of the mother of God for nine months, etc. And she fed milk to he who created all the world. Yes, it's great. But the purpose of all that is one. For us to hear the word of God and to do it. And that's what happened with those at Kapunaum. They heard the word of God. They saw the miracles, but they didn't do anything above that. Yes, they marvelled. Yes, they said, this is great. But that's about all they did. And today, unfortunately, with a lot of Orthodox Christians, that's all we do. We might say, oh, wow, the, the miracles of the church and this and that. We read Lives of Saints and we focus on the miracles, but we don't focus on the purpose of the miracles to help people come to God, to listen to his word. And today, while I was reading the gospel in the liturgy, as I was reading the gospel, today was the rich man and Lazarus, as I was reading there, I just, and then I came to this part, I go, oh, how fabulous, this is what I should read tonight. Then he said, I beg you therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may testify to them, lest they should also come to this place of torment. So this rich man that was in hell said to Abraham, please um, I have five brothers and I don't want them to go to hell like I did. Some, go and tell them. Abraham said to him, they have Moses and the prophets. What does that mean? They have the word of God. Let them hear them. Let them hear them. Let them hear the word of God that was spoken by Moses and the prophets. Because it's like the And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. If, if a miracle like that occurs, that someone from the dead appears to my brothers, a miracle, then they will repent. But he said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. In other words, if they're not moved by the word of God being Jews, which is talking about the Old Testament, if they're not moved by the word of God, then a miracle is not going to help them because the word of God is more powerful. Some people, yes, they need a, um, some type of miracle, etc. But here, 
the parable that Christ is saying is specifically to those who believe. They already believe. They, they, these are Jews that believe. They believe in the book of Moses. They believe in the book of um, and, and the prophets. Why do they have to see a miracle? He goes, that's it. They've got the word. Let them believe that. If they don't even believe that, they're not going to believe a miracle. And Orthodox Christians say today, I want to believe, I want to see, I want to see. But why? Why do we have to see? And even if we see, then we might become like those of Kapanaum, where we just, that's it. We see, oh wow, that's it. Stay at that level and be condemned. The study Bible says it is a far greater sin to have seen Christ's works and rejected him than never to have known him at all. Those who saw Christ's miracles, what we say blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, they saw God's miracles and they denied it. We say they are worse than those who have never seen a miracle before. The Orthodox Study Bible also says judgment is severe for those who reject Christ after experiencing his grace. In contrast, those who have never known Christ due to genuine ignorance are without sin in that regard. So we've got to remember, because some people say, oh, you know, doesn't it say he who doesn't get baptised is, is going to go to hell? But we forget he who is offered baptism, he who knows the truth and rejects baptism, yes, but not those who, have never, who don't even know it, who, who have never been offered, they've never seen anything. And that's why it says here, where Christ says clearly, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would have no sin. See, it says no sin. Because some zealots, some fanatical, they say, everyone who's not in the Orthodox Church is going to go to hell. But he, he says, if I had not come in and spoke to them, not everyone knows the truth. So not, I, if I had not come to them, they would have no sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Who? The Jews and others who heard and experienced the grace, those who saw miracles, etc., they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would have no sin. But now they have seen and also had it both me and my father. I love that part where it says, if, I've, if I didn't come and do these great miracles, they would have no sin. But because they've seen and they rejected then they are guilty. Christ came and taught them, the Jews. Had he not done so, they could have said, we know no better. But now they have no excuse for their malice and sin. That is why the Lord stresses, he who hates me hates my father also. And not only did I perform deeds such as no other man has ever done, among my countless miracles, I gave sight to the man born blind, I raised Lazarus from the dead. All the, the Jews saw all these great miracles. What excuse can they give? Moses taught, and they knew that. He taught the people to obey the man who works wonders and teaches piously. The Jews know. When someone's teaching about God in a pious way, when someone performs wonders, Moses said, listen to that person. Because he's a prophet, he's a, he's, he's a holy person. But what did they do? Someone did come who did miracles and who did teach pious, piously, and they rejected. Now they have seen my works. Nonetheless, they've hated both me and my father. By rejecting Christ, they actually reject God. 
I don't want people to get upset with what I'm going to read and start with stupidities of, of um, just listen and learn. This is from Elder Paisios. Someone came up to him and said, Elder, Yerunda, how is it that, that the Jews read the Old Testament but do not believe in Christ? Because, I'm, now I'm saying this, because in the Old Testament, it's full of references to Christ. Full. Without doubt that Christ is the Messiah, that Christ is the Son of God. Elder Bayesio says, he says, why don't you go and ask the Jews? The Jews were always fanatical. They do not understand, but it is their egoism that blinds them. If they only had paid a little attention to the sacred scriptures, no one would remain a Jew. If they really, with sincerity, as the Samaritan woman, with sincerity, was probing and asking questions, he said, he cried, uh, but Elder Pace was a saying, which is based on what we've read, if they, with sincerity, read the Old Testament, they would come to the belief that Christ is the Messiah. They turn spiritual meanings into material ones. For example... You should see how they interpret Prophet Isaiah's, where he says, the desert shall blossom. The desert, the dry desert, shall blossom. In order to show that the desert has indeed blossomed, they altered the course of a stream, built irrigation systems, planted gardens, banana trees, lemon trees, orange trees, and they created orchards and gardens everywhere so they can say, see, the desert has blossomed. See, they and as many Orthodox reasons, which is not just condemning them. If you look at things in a carnal way, if you don't look at things in a sincere way, in a spiritual way, no, people don't understand. That is how they interpret everything. But the words of the prophet actually refer to the spiritual renewal of the world through the Holy Spirit, through the baptism of regeneration. Then he says, the person asking the question, are they now expecting the earthly king? Because remember, again, because of their way of thinking about the Bible, they look at the Messiah as someone who will become an earthly king like David. They don't look at things in a spiritual way. Yes, the Antichrist. The rabbis know that the Messiah has already come and that they have crucified him. I learned from a person that when a Jew is dying, the rabbi goes and whispers in his ear. And he says, whispering, the Messiah has come. You see, their conscience seems to trouble them by a sense of culpability. They feel responsible. And yet they do not humble themselves. And the person says, and what do they gain by saying that to the dying person? Elder Paisu says, nothing. They just say it because their conscience is troubling them and they think that by saying it to the dying, they will be all right. In other words, they feel responsible because they were teaching the people that the Messiah hasn't come, that Christ is an imposter, and they, and, and they actually say that, that it's all lies. He didn't rise from the dead, all these things are all lies, 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 which Christ has well said that in the, in the Gospel. Then the person says, so while the rabbi is saying that in the ear of the dying person, do the other people hear it? No, it is whispered in the ear. The Jewish youth have revolted against the rabbis. The Messiah has come, they say. What Messiah are you waiting for, they say. Why, why are you waiting? These are the youth. 
In America, there is a group of young Jews who study sacred scripture historically and publish a journal in which they write, The Messiah has come. We'll, we will send this free journal to you of, for, for free to whoever doesn't believe that the Messiah has come until they do believe. So they, these people say they're going to send this periodical where they show from the Old Testament, etc., that the Messiah has come, that Christ was the Messiah. Um, whoever believes should send us their subscription fee for help so we can send out more to those that so others can believe. And the person says to Elder Paisios, are these people Jews? Yes, they are Jews. Then he said, have they become Christians? And Elder Paisios says, well, for now it suffices that they have believed that the Messiah has come. At least they're on that level. And the truth is that there are many crypto-Jews in Israel who are orthodox, who actually go to the holy tomb in the, in the night because they have midnight services there. They go secretly, um, but they're scared to open up and say that they are. Now, you might say, oh, you know, you're, that's um, the anti-Semitism and all this uh, stupidities, or because we, I brought that up. Let me go now to what I said last time, the Catholics at the Holy Sepulchre, where the Holy Light comes. They're there. They see the Holy Light. And when you read the account there, you'll see that the Coptics, the Armenians, not the Catholics, they won't come because they're too, they're, they're, they just do their Easter on their time, but the Coptics, the Armenians, I think one more, they have to kiss the hand of the, the Greek Orthodox Patriot so that he can give them the holy flame, the holy light. If they don't, then they won't get it. Now, these people see this. So who sees it? The Catholics that are there? Because in, the, in this big church, there's all different areas. The Catholics own that area, the Greeks own that area, the Armenians own that area, and the Coptics and things like that. That's a bit of a mess. But anyway, so they see these miracles. They see the holy light. They see that the flame doesn't burn. They know all that, but they don't change. Why? Jealousy, envy. They can't say that they're wrong. They can't admit that they're wrong. The, the holy light is only able to be lit by an orthodox, an orthodox Christian. Now, centuries ago, the Armenian, the Monophysites, they said, we're going to do it. We're going to do it. So they locked the doors of the church, really big, gigantic doors. They locked out the Orthodox Christians and they said, we're going to do it. The Monophysites, we're going to do it. We don't believe in the Fourth Ecumenical Council, we're going to do it. So they locked, them, they locked the Orthodox out. And the Orthodox were outside, crying, praying, disturbed, that they couldn't go in on Holy Saturday where the, where, where the patriarch goes in, kneels down on the, at, in front of the tomb of Christ and where the holy flame comes. And, and not only that, it also lights up sometimes outside with people. And as I said before, it's a tangible, it's not just visual, but it's a tangible miracle. You put it on you, it doesn't burn. So people with beards, they put the flame and they're holding 33 candles. Look, 
I put that there. That's one candle, right? These people are holding 33 candles. That's a big flame, and they're putting it on their face, on their clothes. It doesn't burn. Everyone there. So, if you know the Holy Sep, the, the, the doors of the church there, there are two columns, big, gigantic columns on each side of these big doors. The patriarch was standing, I think, towards the left, praying. Meanwhile, one of the Muslims, those ones that call out from the top of their towers, was he was close there and he was noticing all this, what was going on. Often, you know, there's a lot of... Um, uh, they, uh, he noticed it and he was up there looking. And while the Armenians, while they were trying to call down God's grace to light their candle, nothing was happening. Suddenly, a flame came. I can't remember the exact story, but I think that what happened was that the column, which to this day, cracked in the, like that, and out of the column came the holy fire, which to this day it's still black and, and it's still there. That's why when you go there, you'll notice Orthodox Christians, as they come into the holy sepulchre there, they kiss that split there because from there came the holy light. When the Muslim Khwadza, as we say, saw the miracle, he called out and said that the, that the Orthodox faith is the true faith, that Christ is God. And the Muslims went up and knocked him down and killed him. So he's a new a martyr of the church. He confessed Christ as being God. This makes sense. Even when I say the holy water that doesn't go off and we have the miraculous icons and all these things, um, and people see it, some people are amazed, some people you know, marvel a little bit, some people become a little bit interested, but it's not enough. Firstly, we need humility to admit that we were wrong, and those people, Catholics included, they won't. Jews themselves, they know from the Old Testament that there are so many references that Christ is the Messiah, they reject it, distort it. There's actually a prophecy that many Jews, one third, I'm not sure for how much, but many Jews will come to the Orthodox faith. Now, how much truth there is? I think there's a lot of truth in that. So when we read these examples from the Bible, as I said, we don't just read something that's happened a long time ago, 2,000 years ago. I never read things that happened 2,000 years ago. I look at it as now. Where there's ego, like, you know, like how can my brother do miracles, as the brothers or cousins of Christ were saying. The ego, malice, jealousy, envy. Those people that are present at the Holy Tomb on Great Saturday are jealous. They are jealous because they know that they can't light the Holy Flame, that only the Orthodox can do it. And it's always been a Greek that lights it. 
Because, why Greek? Because when the Jews rejected Christ, Christ went to the pagans, who were the Greek, as we say, the, the pagan Greeks, and they converted and became Christians. And then the pagan empire, through St. Constantine the Great, became the Byzantine Empire and gave orthodoxy to the whole, to many parts of the world. There was another, there was something else, but you know, I haven't got time now. Um, it was a very wonderful thing, but I think it'd be too deep. I mean, be a bit too heavy at this time. And I think that, um, anyway, we, um, and I read that section about the explanation, not rather, not the mother of God is not blessed, more than that, more than the miracle, the purpose of the miracles are for people to come to Christ. Right, are there any um, questions? Yes. At the beginning you talked about having um, an indirect approach with um, um, people of faith and they have to have patience when they... And prayer. And prayer. Um, I mean, with the apostles and with Christ, sometimes like among groups, it seemed like a bit more sort of forceful, like where he sort of go out and preach and sort of thing. And I guess sometimes Protestants would sort of argue that approach. Um, is the difference because one's one on one and the other one's in a group, or how does the, that sort of? I think the happen? difference the difference is that even if they were a bit more in a bit more upfront, it wasn't with fanaticism. They respected the freedom, which is very important in this talk, the freedom. Christ did not force anyone to change. These Protestants or Orthodox Protestants, I call them, those people who, who they, their spirit is not correct. It's one of force, to force the person to the point of fanaticism. That's wrong. And that's um, and when I said that we have to be, I didn't mean indirectly for everyone. For some people, you will speak to them. This was what was for Saint Thomas, I think I remember right. Saint Thomas, what was the indirect again? I forgot the reference. What was it that I made? Um, what, what you're saying is like you have to sort of have patience and not just um, drop your card sort of straight away. You know, um, for so some, like with, the, with the doctor, you were saying yeah, like you, didn't, you didn't show straight away. You just wait for the moment. For some. Andrew, that's correct. But it depends on our relationship with God to understand whether God wants us to go and speak to that person. People don't lead spiritual lives. They're very self-willed, very proud, and they believe that they know when to speak, when not to speak, how to speak, how much to speak. But that's not how the apostles and the saints were. The apostles always received their inspiration from God. That's why we read when the eunuch, I think you say, when he was travelling along in the Acts of the Apostles and he was reading the book of Prophet Isaiah and then the Apostle Philip, inspired by the Holy Spirit, said, do you know what you're reading, etc.? He was inspired. He was enlightened. And then, the, and then the eunuch said there, the whatever he was, he said, I don't know. How would I know if someone doesn't explain it? And then Saint Apostle Philip explained it and then he said, what stops me of being baptised? I want to be baptised. Well, he goes, if you believe, you can be baptised. He goes, well, okay, there's some water. Baptised. He baptised and Philip then disappeared. 
That was all quick, right? Saint, with St. Thomas, it was eight days. For others, it could be eight years, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years. The point is not to have the ego to believe that we know, but always pray to God and say um, when to speak, how to speak, how much to speak, what to say, when to stop. You know, there's all these things. I think that's what I'm trying to say is that there is no patience in people because people believe, well, I've changed. They're going to change too now. But wait a minute, you changed when you were 40 or 30 or whatever. Well, why did you change? Because I felt it. I felt like changing. Well, so were you forced? No. Then why are you forcing the other person, you see? That's the thing. Does that answer your question? My work up doesn't mean I'm worked up with you. It was a good question. Anyone else? How George. does the uh, Orthodox Church determine who will be a saint and how is it done? Who will be? A saint. The canonisation. Yeah. Well, similar to what the Catholics were saying there on the um, television, that it's, it's the people in the Orthodox Church, it's the people. It becomes like people start to venerate that person when people start to pray to that person, not, maybe not officially because it hasn't been canonised, but they pray privately. For example, let's have a look at someone today, Elder Joseph. Elder Joseph is not a canonised saint. However, people believe that he's holy. There are people that have, like icons, but not in the traditional sense, but like a portrait. And it's like someone came from overseas recently and they said before they came here to Australia, they went past where Elder Paisus's grave is. And they said just hundreds of people going, a lot of miracles are occurring, etc. So, sorry? No, Elder Paisius' tomb beneath Thessalonica, isn't it? Up there? Yeah, that's another one. So I'm just saying, Elder Profius, I think, is in, is in Mount Athos. Not many people can go there. So uh, it becomes like a local thing and it becomes to spread and spread and then miracles occur, etc., etc. And then the church then begins to look at it. Sometimes it might take... For some, 40 years, 50 years, 100 years, 200 years, it, it depends on, on, on how... It At the end of the day, it's the bishops which have to go according to the people, see? And especially when... You know, it's not like this thing of the two miracles. Oh, I just couldn't believe that. But anyway, it's... Um, it's uh, it becomes self-evident. It becomes self-evident. Thank you for helping me. Yeah, so... St John died, the, the Russian saint, in 1966, around there... He was canonised in 1994, so that was around um, 30. Some people could be 50, 200 years, it depends. Saint Seraphim died, I don't know, but then he was canonised later on. So it, um, it depends, but there's local veneration, like Saint Eustin Popovic has now been canonised. But the Serbians, in the mind of the Serbians and in the area where his monastery was, people would go to his tomb, they would do uh, memorial prayers, they can't do Malebans because he's not a saint, they would pray to him. I went to St. Um, to, to, um, Eustin Popovic's grave when I went to Serbia. I believe that something that I was seeking, I found. And I believe it was from him. So, um, and, and also the way these Catholics believe that it's got to be like a, a miracle of medical. And later on we're going to see, but that's not the only miracles. There's also things of... Of, um, of people being helped in their problems, impossible situations, people that were committed suicide or people that were... All these other things that occur of guidance and help and solutions for imp 
possible situations where they don't even look at those. So they look at a, a couple of medical things and there has to be two and... I don't know, it makes me sick. Spiritual people really need to look at it. Spiritual people, but at the end of the day, when miracles are occurring continually and, um, and people like with St Nectarius, he died in 1920, I think. He was canonised in the 60s. But he was being he was healing cancer people and, and you know cancer victims and all these type of things. And he became a universal saint. He's known all over the world. Saint Seraphim of Sarov, universal, like every Orthodox church knows Saint Seraphim. Some saints are only venerated locally in that in an era. But now because of the internet and because of books and media, uh, saints of one church can be known all over the, the world where before it couldn't be. But we look at that, that's a good question. We have to look at that more and what is the criteria and this, that. Yes, John. Well, just, just following on from that, as all of us Christians, you're supposed to look to the, to the church for guidance. Mm-hmm. But when the people uh, venerate someone, I'm, not, I'm thinking you mentioned Father Seraphim Rose, uh, a lot of people, and I, I can sort of understand that, venerate him as, as almost a saint now, but then I get the impression that the Greek Orthodox Archdiocese as it take, takes a very negative view of Seraphim and Rose. So, Andy, now you're doing the right thing or not? Well, you see, the way people begin to venerate someone that's holy is they read, for example, their life and how they feel the power that comes from that life. They read the writings, if they've got writings in the letters, etc. Then they begin to... Uh, feel something like a power which is coming from this life, from this world, which is in a way confirming that there's something about this person. And when Saint Father Seraphim died, his uh, face, apart from the fact that his face was quite it was calm, his skin was yellow golden which is the sign of sanctity, which is a sign that someone has been saved. That can be also for a, an old woman. For a, it can be, it can be uh, someone who's lived a Christian life. We're not going to believe that only those who did something, like were priests or... Her, many are saved. However, God does not make it for everyone to be known, like I was trying to say to our friend there. Uh, but in the case of Father Seraphim Rose... In, if you look at his writings, his life, and the way that people have had prayers answered that have gone to his grave and have had panahitas done memorial prayers, and he's been locally considered as a saint, but in a sober way. What is a sober way? They're not doing malebans to him. They're not uh, having icons of him that are showing that he's a saint, just like with Eustin Popovich. You know, he was holy, everyone knew he was holy, but he wasn't canonised yet. So we wait. So in, in the case of Father Seraphim Rose, I believe that he will become a saint. Now some people say, oh, but he made some mistakes here and this and that. If you've got that mindset, you're better off converting to Catholicism because that's what they believe. When someone has a little bit of a, oh, look in that letter what he wrote there, he showed some passion. Or he made a little mistake there, he can't be a saint. Those people need to become Catholics, Roman Catholics, but for us Orthodox, we don't look at that. We look at the whole, the whole um, 
uh, picture. Saint Xenia, for example, we see, we read her life that some kids were throwing rocks at her, things like that, and she became angry, really angry, and she, followed, she chased them to hit them with the stick. Um, she became angry. She's still recognised in the Russian Orthodox Church as a saint, and she's now recognised all over the world. Only God is without sin. See? So um, I personally believe that Father Seraphim Rose has been saved. And therefore, yes, he is, and whoever's saved automatically is a saint. However, the church is the one who determines these official ones who we say, yes, they're saints, yes, we do services, yes, we do all these things. Does that help you with that? As for others, what they say, from their fruits you will know them. Do you understand what I mean by that? Yes. You look at their fruits, then you'll know um, whether their words have credibility. Good trees don't produce rotten apples, but good trees produce good apples. Sorry, was there someone else? Tatiana? No question? And that's it. Well, we should all thank God in our prayers and say thanks, God, that we're able to listen to a talk. Through the prayers of our Holy Fathers, Lord Jesus Christ, our God, have mercy on us and save us. Amen.